kill you. Yeah, what's wrong with the beer we got? Welcome to Auntie Nanny. Uh, with me tonight is the wonderful, lovely, and vivacious Miss Jeannie Kay. How are you this evening, Miss Jeannie? Jeannie? Wonderful. How are you, Miss Jan? I'm okay. Uh, I got to wash my floor <laughs> before I came on the air, so that was fun. Uh, and the very best producer that money can't buy, which is good because still not paying him. Barry, how are you this evening, Barry? I'm good. I, I didn't have to clean up floors yeah. or anything. Yeah. yeah, but you got to hear it. <laughs> and, and, and you know, I don't have those deep snows Jeannie's got. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> so you're doing pretty good all the way around then. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's been a pretty long time since I've done a show. Yeah, yeah. Jubilant, uh, fresh solar rotation to everybody. Yeah. Yeah, happy new year. Um, so yeah, um, I, I I guess I does anybody really because I didn't really tell anybody like what happened or why I just disappeared. But um, I, I guess I can start with that now. So um, I guess I disappeared. What about two weeks before Christmas? Something like that, yeah. Would that be about right? Okay. Um, oh, yeah, my, that's right. My husband's mother had died, which would have been fine, but she was, um, you know how everybody called, well, not everybody, you know how Barry calls me Marvin the Paranoid Android? I might have made suggestion of such, yes. Yes, okay. As far as paranoia goes, Nobody had anything on this woman. So she dies. Um, and nobody knows for a couple of days because we were checking on her every few days. Uh, so the cops come. They break into the house. They find her. She's sitting there with a dust buster in her hand. But um, she's one of those super paranoid people that locked her computer down. Just she had no information anywhere. Um, so we didn't find her will until about a week ago. Um, we've been 
cleaning out the house and stuff and um, we had to <laughs> my mother-in-law's remains her, her ashes are still in my trunk because we don't really know what she wanted done with them after um, this has been the kind of nightmare it's been um, yeah so everything's going through probate and stuff now but um, it's still a lot of work trying to clean up um, basically somebody's life and decide you know what you should donate and, and what not to donate what goes where and, and what goes to who it's even harder when um, the guidance that was left is so old that it was written possibly right after my husband was born <laughs> so it's it's been it's been really really hard and really interesting so uh i have some like things to say to people <laughs> um there are some things you could do to make life really a, a lot easier on the people who are going to have to pick up the pieces after you're gone um there's a book okay and i want to copy it and stick it in the chat for people who are in chat and if not i will tell you what it's called um it's it's this wonderful book called i'm dead now what right so you buy this book and it um it's kind of funny but it, it you put your personal information your medical information your contacts all your important documents and stuff in there right? Your pets, what to pay, what to close, what to cancel, your last words, all this stuff. It's not really a will, but it's sort of a guide for the first few days. Um, and I think everybody who has loved ones should definitely get that book and fill it out. And for the first time, I'm going to probably sound less paranoid than most people. Um, but you know, your social media stuff, you should really not just your social media, but your, your email stuff, your banking stuff, all that stuff should really be shared with someone you trust. Otherwise, you're leaving them holding the bag, um, paying for your bills and their bills. And a lot of people can't survive like that. Um, so um, there's another book here that I think that people should buy if they can't afford to have the will made. I'm trying to stick it in the chat, but it's called um, The App of Last Will and Testament Kit. It's not so much a book, but it's got examples of every kind of will in it, and it's got two wills in it that you can make out and get notarized. And I, I highly recommend that people do that. Um, it makes it really hard when the laws have changed so much in like 20 years or 30 years or whatever um, to either not have one or have one that's out of date. Um, so that, that kit's a really good idea and it's, it's not super expensive. It's about $17. Um, even if you have to hire a lawyer, it's really good to have that second book only because it, it will walk you through the kind of things you would need. And it's specifically written for non-legal people to get it. Um, so if you're going to spend $500 or so to have a, a will made, it's it's good to spend that $17 initial in, investment and, and see what, what that looks like. 
so you're not talked into something you don't need and, and spending a lot of money you don't need to spend. Um, and you should probably leave copies of your car keys, your house keys in, in safe places. You should add your next of kin or the person that you've decided is going to take care of your affairs to your bank accounts and your safety deposit box. Um, and you should probably ensure that you have enough insurance to make sure you can pay for, you know, a bare bones cremation yourself. Um, and if you were really smart, you would set up auto pay on your incoming bills, but that doesn't always happen. Um, so this whole thing's been a real nightmare. I don't know how to talk nicely about those things, but definitely if you have someone you love, set up a will. Um, think about what would happen if next week were the last week you were going to be alive and, and try to make that easier for them because making it harder serves no purpose except making everybody miserable and uh, your next of kin or the people that are seeing after your affairs broke. That's about all I have on that. Does anybody have anything to add? I, I am, um, Jen, and not that this makes you feel any better, but I, I will tell you that because my grandmother, um, my maternal grandmother, wanted her ashes at this place called Brandywine, or Brandy Camp, one of the two, um, where her family was from. Mm -hmm. And um, my mother was my grandmother's um, uh, medical proxy, healthcare right, proxy, right. and was to take care of everything because, you know, my mom is the eldest child. Mm -hmm. um, my parents had left for Florida. And this is how I remember when my grandmother died because my parents always leave for Florida the last Saturday in October. Right. Now it's a little earlier because they come here. Well, anyway, um, a week later, my grandmother, um, they called me from, my mom calls me and says, they called me and they're taking your grandmother from the nursing home to the hospital. I said, okay, fine. So I go down and, and they're not doing what my grandmother wanted. Mm -hmm. My, my uncles are there and say, no, no, this is okay. This is okay. I'm like, uh, no. I, uh, and I call my mom and I'm like, um, they're doing what they want, not what she wants. Right, right. So needless to say, um, my mother took care of the situation and I got told I was killing my grandmother, blah, 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 blah. Um, my mom made all the arrangements to have her cremated. And mm -hmm. my grandmother, um, was in a box in my mother's closet until the spring when they got home from Florida. Yeah. Well, I'm driving around with my mother mom. what I wanted to do but um so there she is you know every morning we get to go to work together yeah my, my father's in a, in a cupboard in my sister's house yeah <laughs> he probably quite likes it in there there's <laughs> you know stuff there's stuff and there's not a lot of people bothering him I'm sure yeah so. I, I don't know I just I... <laughs> it's it's never it's never easy Jan I mean, oh, and, easy, you know, there, there are it, ways to make it easier. Yeah. yeah. My father died, um, well, on the 8th, it'll be a year ago. Mm -hmm. So, and, and I told him all along, I mean, he went through wives, like I buy shoes and, 
And I kept telling him, you know, you need to write down what you want. You need to have this shit written down. You need to have the shit written down. And when he died, everybody's looking at me going, you know, well, you need to take You need to do something because so-and-so saying this and so-and-so's. I'm like, I ain't fucking doing nothing about none of this shit. I told him. <laughs> I told him to write it down. And lo and behold, what he ended up doing was he had one of my stepsisters. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd written a will. And I had told him, I don't want nothing to do with it, Dad. I'm not, I'm not, I am not fighting with anybody over anything. I'll burn it all and put it in the ground with you. Right. And so he got one, asked one of my uh, stepsisters to be the executor. And, and of course, my father, who loved to cause trouble and do hateful shit to people. Um, there was a lot of stuff in that will that people weren't going to like. And and I told my sister, I said, well, I said, I'll back you up on it. It doesn't matter what it says. I'll back mm-hmm. you up on it. Right, and she right. said, you'd do that? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. I said, you know, it doesn't matter if anybody likes it, including you or me. Mm-hmm. It's it's what he wanted. So that's what we'll do. That son of a bitch had gone and written another will <laughs> and made his wife the, the gold digging... <laughs> And never told my sister. So, I mean, you know, even even when shit is written down, mm-hmm. honey, it can be fucked up. So, yeah, I mean, it, it just, it, it sucks. And the best advice I can give anybody is die with nothing. Well, you know, not even... I've got that covered. Yeah. yeah, me too. Um, it's not even the die with nothing. When you die with nothing and you have outstanding bills... Um, the state comes after the next of kin, so don't die with nothing. I How see. I'm in the UK. They nothing? can't come after the next of kin. So. Oh, yeah. they do it here. Um, yeah, it, it's against the law here. So yeah. Oh, it's not here. No, no. Your debts die you. with you in the UK. So. Holy yeah. crap! That's kind of nice, but yeah. no, we don't have that here. Here we have the uh, we'll go after the next of kin and sue the shit out of them and garnish their wages kind of things. So. Um, yeah, I highly recommend leaving enough to just pay for your shit and nothing else. You know what I mean? Just just pay for what you've had through life. Maybe you can leave a paid-off car. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm with uh, Billy Connolly. He said this a long time ago. How, how would you, you know, that somebody asked him, hey, well, what would you do about a funeral? He's like, four sticks of dynamite up my jacksy and light the fuse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's... Uh... It's been interesting, and it was it was hard for Dan because he was an only child, so I felt really bad. It was it was hard, and I think the only person I told was Jeannie. I didn't even tell anybody else, you know. Um, and it's not because I'm um, like a, a super private person or anything, but it, it wasn't my story to tell. That was if Dan wanted people to know, that was Dan's business. But I was there to stick by him and help him out as much as I could, and things were straighten out a little bit, but um, I keep messing with my work hours and there's no way on Mondays I can make it home and do a show, so Friday is the new Monday. <laughs> so, uh, welcome to the Friday edition of Auntie Nanny. Um, <laughs> I don't even know um, where to start. It's been such a really horribly interesting week, but I'm going to put something um, in the chat here because everybody knows I'm kind of up on this stuff. Um, that is 
a government file that claims to have proof that uh, Russia hacked the elections. And um, that, that is their proof. Uh, my favorite part is the two pages that go on and on about shows that were on RT that haven't been on RT for over two years. I'm sorry, a year respectively, a year and a half for another. Um, so it's, it's really interesting stuff. Uh, not a super big fan of that theory, and, and we'll talk about it later, but I thought people would want to see that. That's a declassified government file. Um, okay. Jenny Pick. Oh, shit, sorry. Push the talk. <laughs> I constantly forget. <laughs> talk. Oh, let me see. Whoa, sorry. Puppy was falling <laughs> off my lap. <laughs> um, you know, I would like to, because you and I were talking about Edward Snowden the other day, and, yes, you yes. know, and my husband and I, we have uh, philosophical differences in, of opinion. So let's go with the de Defense Department oversight. Um, yeah, Jeannie and I actually talked a lot about that. Um, also, before I even get to this, if you have Netflix, I'm going to recommend you have, you add a documentary to your queue called 1971. Um, and when you start to watch it, the parallels between the Edward Snowden case and whistleblowing, all, all of the reasons why I recommended it to you will become abundant. Um, Defense Department oversight finds more evidence of retaliation against whistleblowers from the government shutdown, depart shutdown department. More evidence has surfaced showing the U.S. government really doesn't care for whistleblowers. A Defense Department Inspector General's report obtained by Muckrock contains details of Air Force supervisors trained as a civilian, reported, uh, civilian employee who reported time card abuse. The heavily redacted report, which Muckrock requested following an announcement in the January newsletter of the Department of Defense Inspector General, found the supervisor accused the whistleblower of being a mentally unstable drug abuser, in addition to revoking his security clearance for the offense of reporting that colleagues were allowed to leave work hours early and lie on their time cards. After that, things apparently became personal. Well, they were already personal, what with supervisors accusing a whistleblower of being crazy slash on drugs. The relationship between the employee and his supervisors went from bad to toxic. The report says verbal abuse, several verbal altercations were noted as the work relationship became quote-unquote mutually hostile. The Air Force then pulled some more crap, resulting in another whistleblowing attempt by the same employee. When told not to perform an asbestos test before drilling into the walls to install surveillance equipment, the employee bypassed the proper channels, which had already proven useless and retaliatory, and went straight to the inspector general. Having been notified of this, the IG dug deeper, uncovering the Air Force's vengeful tactics. In response to the employee's report to the IG, the Air Force supervisor doubled down on his crazy drug user claims, the ones he used in support of having the employee suspended and his security clearances revoked. And the supervisor justified that suspension by telling IG investigators that his subordinate had difficulty getting along with fellow employees, that employees were afraid of complainant and locked the office door because of fear that he suspected complainant was using drugs. 
citation, please. The inspector general concluded that the supervisor could not provide any evidence to support these allegations and that the clearance revocation was reprisal. The statement given by the retaliatory supervisor to explain away the lack of documented evidence supporting his crazy drug user claims is a joy to read, filed with tilt with multiple layers of truly terrible CYA logic. When queried as to why he did not document these bizarre behaviors in either the December 22nd, 2011 or April 29, 2012 memo to support the complaint and suspension, Redacted testified he had been hamstrung on documenting anything because complainant grieved everything that was documented. Redacted further testified that he believed his chain of command did not want documentation of these things for fear that there would be complaints filed by complainant. Redacted testified he received no support from the civilian personnel office or his chain of command when it came to dealing with complainant. Redacted testified. Redacted told him, Redacted, that he had handled issues regarding complaint correctly, but he was going to order a CDI, Commander Directed Investigation, to throw the complaint in a bone, and so maybe a complaint would not file a bunch of IG complaints. That seems to have worked out well. And not every whistleblower ends up without a career or investigated by the agency they work for, but far too many face this sort of response when calling out government wrongdoing. Efforts have been made to shore up protections for whistleblowers, but it's illustrative of where these efforts fall short to note that this employee, a civilian, would not have been protected by federal whistleblower laws. Perhaps that's why Air Force supervisors felt so comfortable acting in retaliation. The government routinely uses civilian contractors and is under no statutory obligation to behave any better when dealing with their whistleblowing than the Air Force Mm -hmm. did here. Only a shock. And it just kind of makes me sad when I think about this. Um, and it's a, and a kind of an oldest time thing. People try to go up the chain of command. Um, you try to have your complaints addressed. You try to get everything taken care of um, in a reasonable manner, and you just you can't. And the reason you can't is because you're hamstrung at every turn. There's a reason when the government started creating the hollow man like they did under W, W. (laughs) Uh, There was a reason for that. And it's a a good reason. It's a reason that makes sense. If you hire people who are not government employees, you don't have to protect them. You can do as you wish to them. And no one will ever really be the wiser. If it weren't for this man going to the inspector general, no one would have ever known about this mess. I mean, and if, if, and and I will say if, if this guy, um, if redacted was such a fuck nut, um, (laughs) they, they should have documented something. Um, And sometimes you, you have to push your supervisors to get things documented. I mean, I've had that situation. Um, When I used to get stuck with training all of the temporaries uh the company i used to work for instead of hiring people permanent off the street would hire them through a temporary agency and be able to pay them minimum wage for doing the same job i was making 27 30 an hour for um and because i turned in 300 percent on incentive every day um they said here you teach these people how to do their job because we don't want lazy ass over there doing it 
<laughs> okay, fine. So I get stuck with all these temporaries. And, and honest to God, Jan, and I tell them, I said, look, I'm sorry that you're getting paid minimum wage for doing this job. I'm not going to tell you what I make. Don't ask me what I make mm -hmm. because I'm not any happier about the difference than you would be. So we're just going to leave it. But some of these people were just fucking lazy and they didn't want to do anything. And I went to the, my supervisor, um, three times about this one girl and he's like well you know we got to give her a chance da, da, da. i'm like no fuck this she she doesn't listen she does shit wrong on purpose she's trying to get fired she is not going to fuck something up and you come back and say why didn't i do something about it i'm doing what i'm supposed to i'm coming to you write this shit down well i i really don't want to put anything in her file and i said fine i'll <laughs> take care of it elsewhere and i went to hr and I told HR, I said, look, I don't know what your guys' arrangement is with this temporary agency, what, but here is my list of problems. Mm -hmm. I want them written down somewhere. And they're like, well, do you really think that's necessary? Yes, I fucking do. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't know, you know, and a lot of times when it's with an employee that's a problem child, mm -hmm. Um, I think they're half afraid to write stuff in files because they're, they're, they think they're going to get sued for harassment or something. Mm -hmm. But, and then, you know, I, on the other hand, I've seen people that were busting their ass and just because they wanted to toe the line, you know, I got, I got a day off. I got a day off with no pay, Jan. I was suspended for a day with no pay. Because I refused to sign an inspection sheet. I said, these parts aren't right. I'm not signing it. I red carded them. They said, yeah, but we got, we got inspection quality assurance to come up here. And they said, they're fine. I said, then fine. Like quality assurance, sign the motherfucker. I'm doing it. Right. And so, yeah. So my supervisor gave me a day off with no pay because I refused to, to sign an inspection sheet when I knew the parts weren't any good. So, yeah. I mean... No, no. It happens. It happens everywhere. It does. I, um, this is going to sound fun. The last four years at my job, since I got a new boss, I went without any sort of decent, I didn't get any raises at all. And I was due for some, and there was always a reason. I always got a really, really bad review. And the last review I got was so bad. I was standing on the sales floor screaming for the store manager and he came from his office on the second floor of the building um and he looked at it and I'm like how could you sign off on that you know he i got out of a possible 200 points i got like 30 i've never gotten a review like that before I'm like, well reviews are subjective and this and that and this and that i wound up calling human resources and now his assistant writes all the reviews he's no longer allowed to write reviews in the department because of favoritism they haven't moved him they haven't done anything about it really but uh he's no longer allowed to write the reviews so it's retaliatory where you work no matter where you work no matter what you do um and that's a fact of life pretty much if you don't work for yourself although Anybody who works for themselves is pretty miserable because they're working for the biggest asshole on planet Earth. Go ahead. 
Well, when, yeah, I just covered in the same stuff when I was a restaurant manager. Yeah, you had to keep on top of the paperwork. And yeah, I, I over my seven years in charge of the restaurant I was at, I had two employees try to bring complaints. But the company just looks at the paperwork and goes, yeah, right. you're lying, bye. <laughs> well, I mean... With me, it wasn't that. I was I was a role model employee before this boss got there. Yeah. Role model. I mean, which meant, you know, I when I was eligible for raises, I was always getting them. Or I, you know, I never had a problem before this particular boss got there. That's just normal. Well, that, that was... I was in a good position in that job I was in because I was more... Sh senior company time than a lot of the managers and yeah there was one occasion when there was a manager tried to get rid of lots of the heads of department in the hotel and they basically got told no because all the heads of department in our hotel apart from the head chef mm -hmm. had all been there like five six years so the company was like no no those are the people who know how that hotel runs we're not moving them yeah well i mean the thing is i've been at my job 16 years so in the last few years they've been bringing in these supervisors that have been at work like two three and four years and you're going really you're my boss you're five <laughs> it's just interesting and they don't i don't know it's an interesting system um working for somebody else is always interesting and it's something i've really enjoyed in the last few years um very pick a story oh Let's see. Uh, war on fake news. Okay. We've all been hearing about fake news lately, so this is good. The war on fake news is all about censoring real news. Scrambling for an explanation for Donald Trump's victory, many in the media and on the left, have settled on the idea that his supporters were consumers of fake news, uh, gullible roofs living in an alternative reality, made Trump president. To be sure, there is such a thing as actual fake news, made-up stories built to get Facebook traction before they can be debunked, but that's not what's really going on here. What the left, and I didn't write this, is trying to do is to denigrate anything outside its ideological bubble as suspect on its face. And uh, I, again, I didn't write this. In October, President Obama complained that we needed a curating function to deal with the wild west of information flow. Who would be doing this curating is unclear, but we can guess. Obviously, Noah Friedman writes at Bloomberg View, it would be better if the market would fix this problem on its own, but if they can't reliably do it, and that seems possible since algorithms aren't yet fact-checkers, they might need the state to step in. Okay, we all know I never think the state is an option. In other words, censorship. And whom might the government look to target in this crackdown? In an interview with Jen Winning of Rolling Stone last week, Obama said again that the biggest challenge that I think we have right now in terms of this divide is that the country receives information from completely different sources. Huh. Seemingly, with this straight face, Obama then told Winner, good journalism continues to this day. 
there's a great work done in Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone, of course, ran a sensational and false story last year about a gang rape at the University of Virginia fraternity that was thoroughly discredited. The magazine was forced to pay university administrator at Defame $3 million in damages, and there may be more lawsuits in store. Good journalism and Rolling Stone do not go hand in hand. And then Obama removed all doubt. He blamed Trump's win on Fox News in every bar and restaurant in a big chunk of the country. But of course, the fake news problem goes both ways and illustrates what's really on the left's mind. Last week, The Guardian ran a column, ostensibly written by a liberal man who had fallen down the online rabbit hole of alt-right and, just like that, found himself becoming a racist. I just passively consumed because deep down I knew I was ashamed of what I was doing, the author writes. I started to roll my eyes. My friends talked about liberal progressive things. What was wrong with them? Did they not understand what being a real liberal was? All my friends were just SJWs. They didn't know that free speech was under threat and politically correct culture and censorship were the true problem. It was the subject naturally praised across the online left. It confirmed their deepest suspicions. It was almost too good to be true. And it probably was. Godfrey Elwick, a Twitter personality whose bio describes him as a genderous, queer, Muslim atheist who prefers to be called XIR, XIRS, and XIR self, has claimed credit for the hoax. He has been posting what he says is evidence that he wrote it, including time stamped drafts. Whether the piece is real or not, it exposes a bigger problem. The point of the column is that if you consume information with which you disagree, you will become brainwashed and eventually someone you don't recognize. Better not to take that chance. We joke about safe spaces, but The Guardian took seriously the idea that we need to create a safe space for ourselves where no alternative opinions can enter, unless we find that we are unable to digest unapproved thoughts without becoming a monster. And that's what the push against fake news is really about. It's a way to marginalize all non-liberal voices and blur the lines between viral sites pushing questionable content and reliable outlets with which we may just disagree. Obama wants you to think the one major cable network consistently critical of him is brainwashing the population by beaming its talking points into bargainers' pints. An echo chamber, like the one pushed in the anonymous Guardian piece, is much more of a problem in the news consumption than inaccurate information. The more curated the media becomes, the less likely we are to hear an opposite viewpoint and to have ours challenged. It's a bug, not a feature. And of course, the story itself is propaganda about fake news covering up real news. But it's, it's all news has bias. Yes. All you can do is look at every side and at every side. I mean, and then go, okay. Everybody knows I'm, I've passed the point of libertarian and become something else. Right, right. Well, but Jan, have we talked? Have you talked about the, 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 the NDAA? No, not yet. And no. what was in it? Because no, not yet. Okay. Well, because it kind of goes with this yeah, story. Yeah. It's like, wait a fucking minute. Our government is on this big screaming meanie about ending all of this fake news, and something needs to be done about all of this fake news. And they've got all these fucking social media companies censoring this shit and trying to get rid of this fake news and 
But hold up. Wait a minute. What what did they slide into the NDAA this year? I'm sorry, it was last year, but <laughs> it, it makes no fucking sense that that the government is well, it does make sense. It's it's shock and awe and distract. Distract them with this while back here in the background, we're just going to sneak in an entire fucking department that we're going to fund to put out propaganda. Well, you know, here, here is, is, I'm going to recommend, actually, um, I could probably dig it up. Um, give me a second. There's, there's two of them. So, um, I am going to give Barry a link and ask him to play it. Okie dokie. Did, did that show up for you at all? Yes. Okay. Um, you play that, and then I'm going to go look for something called the New Media Priesthood. Okay. Um, and I'll be back. I'll play that while you're gone. Okay. Waiting for YouTube. <laughs> well, it made almost no headlines, and yet a major piece of legislation was quietly signed into law a little over a week ago. President Obama signed a bill that allows the U.S. government to combat foreign propaganda by creating its own. Let's take a look and give it a reality check. Well, a little over a week ago, President Obama quietly signed into law the 2017 National Defense Authorization Act. That act is a military funding act, and in this case, it authorized $611 billion for military spending in 2017. No big deal, right? But so often, there are additional laws and spending bills tucked into the NDAA, and this year was no exception. This time, it was something called the Countering Foreign Propaganda and Disinformation Act of 2016. Oh yes, this bill, which was on the Senate side, sponsored by Ohio Senator Rob Portman, is designed to combat what is called foreign propaganda from organizations such as RT, China's CCTV, or Iran's Press TV. Here's why Portman says the bill is necessary. Quote, surprisingly, there is currently no single U.S. governmental agency or department charged with the national level deployment, integration, and synchronization of whole government strategies to counter foreign propaganda and disinformation. Well, there is now. That bipartisan bill will establish an interagency center housed at the State Department to coordinate and synchronize counter-propaganda efforts throughout the U.S. government. The bill also creates a grant program for NGOs, for think tanks, civil society, and other experts outside government who are, quote, engaged in counter-propaganda related work. Now, let's be clear. This is being sold as countering propaganda, but how do you do that? After all, if government agencies put out information to the public for the sake of altering a point of view, isn't that the very definition of propaganda? In fact, that definition is this. Information, ideas, or rumors deliberately spread widely to help or harm a person, a group, a movement, an institution, a nation, etc. So this law essentially funds U.S. propaganda. But isn't that illegal? It was. 
but no, not anymore, because three years ago, wrapped inside the 2013 NDAA, was an amendment that removed the ban on the U.S. government creating propaganda and then showing it to U.S. citizens. That ban, by the way, had been in place since 1948. The 2013 amendment struck down a ban on domestic dissemination of propaganda material produced by the State Department and the Independent Broadcasting Board of Governors. It neutralized the Smith-Munt Act of 1948 and the Foreign Relations Authorization Act in 1987 that had been passed to protect U.S. audiences from our own government's misinformation campaigns. And in 2013, when that bill was passed, most media said, oh, don't worry, the U.S. government will never actually create propaganda. Well, now they've created the mechanism to fund it. So what you need to know is that politicians claiming we need to fund U.S. government propaganda to protect the public from the Russians and from the Chinese. But there's a reason it was illegal for over 60 years for our government to propagandize the public, to protect the public from our own government. Reality check, right now, two out of every three Americans in the latest polls say they have little to no trust in mainstream American media because two-thirds of Americans already believe that they're not getting the truth. That number will likely only get worse with the legalized American government propaganda. So what is the solution here? Well, how about media just tells the truth, just reports facts, does not act as an arm for political parties or for government institutions? If we want to combat propaganda, both foreign and domestic, then shouldn't we just inform the public rather than trying to control their views? That's Reality Check. Let's talk about it on Twitter. Okay, um, so yeah, that happened. That was Ben Swan. Um, ben Swan is the kind of journalist that if I were a journalist, I would want to be. Um, he is one in Edward R. Murrow report. He was just some guy who wound up working at a news station in Texas and he covered what was really going on over the border with drugs and the killings and he really did some great investigative reports and he, he does things like reality check now where he really breaks it down. And I think he did a good job with that. Anybody? I, I, I just, <laughs> you know, I want to know how this is being funded. Um, and you know, and, and this, this is why all of this fake news shit everybody's screaming about is pissing me off so bad. You know, the government's behind this push against fake news and they're sneaking around and sliding in an entire department to do exactly what they're bitching about. Wait, what, what the fuck? Um, you know, when they did start decimating Smith Munt, I knew it was going to be bad. Um, because journalism, journalism to me is a higher calling. It's not something that people should necessarily, and this is going to sound terrible. I mean, I don't even think this is something people should necessarily make money for, um, to be the watchdog or the town crier. I don't think that's something you should get paid to do, right? Um, you should do it because you've uncovered a truth or it tugs at your conscience or you want people to know the truth. That's why I, that's why we do this. Oh, I think they should get paid lots of money. I think they should get paid more money than, than people throwing a football around on a field. 
um, solely for the fact that you know the the more the more dirty truth you uncover, the more popular you are. I mean, it, but it's got to be based in 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 truth. You know, that's not true. (laughs) I can tell you from my own numbers that's not true. It's not true. Yeah, and if you want to, I know it's not true, but it should be. That should be the way it works. Yeah, the connection between money and journalists. Just look up. Uh, the the stuff to do with the fake shake in the UK. That guy was a journalist and made an awful lot of money, but made up everything that he ended mm-hmm. up printing. All the stories. Mo- you know, 99% of what he produced was made up. Mm-hmm. But it was popular, so they kept throwing money at him. Oh, keep doing that. It's great. And then, and then, and then it all ended with a really big court case. And yeah, it been some of his compatriots did jail time. So yeah. you, sh- you should, if you're telling lies to people, you deserve to do jail time. Journalism is is one of those things that should be a higher calling. It should inform. It should, it should do what people say art should do. It should comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. You, you know what I mean? It should make you think it should change your mind it should force you to look at different things through different eyes and i try to do that all the time Um, spotlight not keeping up with the kardashians is what you're saying yeah pretty much that's that's media for people spotlight excellent film people should watch it (laughs) the kardashians are um I, i don't know what they are um i really don't but um, yeah, they're they're not something that I think is newsworthy. They're not something I think that should be included in in the news cycle. They're perfect for for tabloid journalism, for tabloid television. Uh, that's what they should exist for. You have a hybridization now of media that tells you tabloid news, feeds you happy stories about cats being rescued and does no real informing um and people are quite sick of it conan o'brien does anybody remember the videos conan o'brien did where he would show like the easter bunny's coming today (laughs) right and he would show it from like 27 different stations a lot of people don't know about that is there is an office even before they really started decimating the shit out of smith mud at the White House that does nothing but help create these news blurbs for people, for for news stations to put out there. And it's happy, brain-dead, mindless, feel-good stuff. I'm not saying it's to distract you from what's really going on, but it adds a note to the news cycle that's completely disingenuous because there's no real reporting if there's no real investigating. If you're just reading what you're being fed by the government, how's that reporting? It's not. Um, and I don't know if that even has any value to society, but it should. Um, anyway, I, I said I would find something called the new media priesthood. Well, it's not. Um, this comes from something called the forbidden history of unpopular people. And um, part one is quite the thing to see. 
it's long and it goes on, but it talks about what happens in Australia when they go forth to censor the news. So I don't know if you want to play that, Mary. I dropped yeah. that for you. Just, uh... Topher Field's an interesting guy. Um, he's a libertarian. He, um, he, I share a lot of the same um, experiences as him as I know a lot of people in Venezuela and, and some of the things that they've gone through. So I tend to keep up with what he does, even if I don't agree with him completely all the time on everything. This he's not wrong on. Okay, I've got that if you want to. All right, I'll go for it. So it turns out, free speech is actually very expensive. Depending on where you are and what you say, speaking freely could cost you ridicule, imprisonment, or even execution. Soldiers have fought and died so that you could have freedom of speech, but believe it or not, there are people in Australia right now who are trying to take it off you. Free? Not anymore. Now, the concept of free speech has a long and troubled history, so let's get a bit of historical perspective. Ignaz Semmelweis, or Iggy as his mates call him, joined the Unpopular People Hall of Fame by challenging the medical wisdom of his day. Iggy believed that new mothers were dying of disease caused by doctors who were cutting up dead people in autopsies and then delivering babies without washing their hands in between. The good doctor Ignaz Semmelweis slashed the mortality rate in his ward by forcing doctors to wash their hands with chlorinated lime. So, did the medical establishment embrace his life-saving idea? Years? <laughs> keep dreaming. See, it was the mid-1800s and germs hadn't been invented yet, or discovered, or whatever. And so Iggy couldn't explain why his theory worked, he just knew that it did. Things didn't go well. Iggy soon found himself on the fringe of modern medicine and his career went, um, badly. He ended up working for free at a small hospital in Budapest where he once again slashed the mortality rate. Do you think the others paid attention then? Ha! Of course not. You see, the medical establishment knew that sickness was caused by imbalances in the four humours of the body, which was often treated with a good old-fashioned bloodletting. Um, Feeling better yet? No. The end result? Iggy finally died in an insane asylum after trying desperately and unsuccessfully to get doctors to simply wash their hands properly. He was just 47 years old. So if you've gotten this far without your doctor giving you a life-threatening infection from the dead guy in the other room, then one of the people you should be thanking is a madman from Hungary who died young, whose funeral was attended by only a handful of people, was widely despised, very unpopular, and thought to be ill-tempered, tactless, intolerant, and superlatively offensive. If I had to sum up Semmelweis's sorry existence in one word, it would be loser. Thing is, the loser was right. And the establishment, the experts, the medical scientific consensus, they were all wrong. The historical list of kooks, crazies, losers and nutters who turned out to be right is long and controversial, including people like Semmelweis, Socrates, Galileo, Luther, Wilberforce, Churchill, Bonhoeffer, Mandela, Martin Luther King and many, many more. These are people who each stood up in defiance against their day's conventional wisdom and made the world a better place as a result. Their courageous speech shaped our conventional wisdom today, but to do it, they had to say outrageous things. Things that everybody knew were wrong. Kooky, unscientific, off the wall, the babblings of madmen. Things are better today, right? We wouldn't persecute people like that today. We enjoy the benefits of a free, liberal democracy with 
free speech and all that, so problem solved, right? Yeah, no. The lesson we should have learned by now is that freedom of speech is vital to progress. We should have learned that free speech means being free to speak your mind as you see fit, using whatever means are available to you without anyone else being able to tell you what to say, how to say it, or where you can say it. The problem is that free speech means that insensitive people can say insensitive things. Sure, I like dogs. You just gotta cook them right. Crazy people can say crazy things. I love lamb. Stupid people can say stupid things. Calling what? Calling what? And Call offensive people can say offensive things. Were you hit by a truck or were you born with that face? This, of course, is upsetting. So the first thing we know about free speech is that it's expensive. And the second thing we know is that it's offensive. But every time we try to make free speech less offensive, we create far more problems than we solve. Take vilification and hate speech laws. The idea is to stop people from saying things that could offend others. In England, for example, a prominent Muslim said that homosexuality was not acceptable and was duly investigated for homophobia, while at the same time a leading gay and lesbian publication said that Islam was homophobic and they were duly investigated for Islamophobia. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. But even when someone does say something genuinely offensive, were you hit by a truck or were you born with that face. Should I really have the power to take him to court and make him shut up? No more comments about his face. Really? Do we really want to give anyone that kind of power over what other people can say? And this is not just a theoretical question. Already in Australia, certain people have been barred from speaking on certain subjects because somebody else didn't like their opinion and dragged them into court. Now, if they dare to express their opinion on those subjects again, they could be found guilty of contempt of court and thrown into jail. It hasn't happened yet, but in Australia, we already have the legal framework for people to go to jail for what they say. A free liberal democracy? Hmm. Not anymore. But it's about to get worse. The recently released Finkelstein report has recommended that a new government-funded news media council be created with the power to force people to publish an apology, correction or retraction or to give someone a right to reply in appropriate cases. Okay, so this news media council will have a board of 21 people who will get to decide what is and is not an appropriate case for intervention. Which means in practice that these guys get to decide what we are and are not allowed to say. That's a hell of a lot of power. And given that all of the council's funding is coming from the federal government, and the federal government gets to appoint the head of the council, well, far be it from me to suggest that uh, a politician would be so cynical and self-interested as to stack the news media council to suit their political aims. Pfft, that's never going to happen. The council is supposed to help ensure that the reporting of news and politics, etc., is fair and accurate. Interesting. Fair according to who? You see, accuracy can be tested against empirical facts, but fairness is always a matter of personal opinion. One person's idea of fair is another person's idea of prejudice. So when the news media council decides that someone's been unfair, how do we know that it isn't the news media council itself that's being unfair? Answer? We don't. And by the way, there's no way to appeal a decision made by the council. Hmm. News media dictators. Interesting. But even if the council is fair, what then? Well then, all the council can do is dogmatically stand up for today's conventional wisdom. Isn't that what fair and balanced really is? Isn't it just another way of saying what most of us were already thinking? So along comes an Ignaz Semmelweis with his chlorinated lime, or a Galileo with a new cosmology, or a, a Churchill warning us that Hitler's going to start a war, or a... I told you so. Or a Martin Luther King saying that black people aren't inferior to white people, and... Really? Can somebody please fire the makeup department? And what is the news media council supposed to do? To them, the guy's a kook. He's unscientific, he's offensive, he's not balanced or fair, whatever that is. So the council takes action, shuts the kook up, and goes home to celebrate a job well done.
That's it. That's the best this council will ever do. Shut down the fringe dwellers and make sure that we are only ever faced with nice, safe, fair opinions that the council thinks we can handle. I have a question for the author of this report. Given that you and your news media council are human beings just like everyone else, what makes you think that you or they have the power to force another human being to shut up? Are you special? Do you have some gift of knowledge? Are you a modern-day prophet, a diviner of truth? Hmm. News media priesthood. It's catchy. John Mills said it best in his book On Liberty. If all mankind, minus one, were of one opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one than that one, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. I agree. But it seems that the Honourable Ray Finkelstein QC does not. Let's have a look at what he says. There is common ground amongst all those who think seriously about the role of the news media. Whoa, 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 hang on a second. We're halfway through one sentence and already there's a problem. What he's saying here is that if you don't wholeheartedly agree with whatever he's about to say next, then clearly you're not a serious thinker. Because all the serious thinkers agree. That's a verbal manipulation worthy of the mother-in-law from hell. Either you agree with me or clearly I'm smarter than you. This is not about journalistic standards. It's not about media accountability or conflict resolution. It's about arrogance. It's about powerful people here in Australia who believe that they're smarter than you, that their opinion is worth more than your opinion, that their thinking is better than your thinking, and if you think they're wrong, then you should just shut up. Still don't believe me? Well, in reply to the claim that Australians were perfectly capable of making up their own minds on important subjects, the Honourable Ray Finkelstein QC said that often readers were not in a position to make an appropriately informed judgement. Let's break that down for a second. Firstly, he's assuming to know how well informed you are on any given topic. Secondly, he's assuming that you can't or won't seek out more information. And thirdly, he's assuming that he and people like him can fix that by force-feeding you their version of balanced and fair information. Them smart, you dumb. End of story. Wow! What a great argument against democracy. If we're so stupid that we can't be trusted to think for ourselves, then surely we can't be trusted to vote either, or to influence government by protesting or lobbying or speaking our mind. We should just shut up and let the smart people decide everything. Hmm. News media Gestapo. And these guys want power over every newspaper, TV and radio show, news and opinion blog, right down to popular Facebook pages and Twitter feeds. Any website that gets more than 42 hits per day could potentially be in their sites. Even if this doesn't directly affect what you write, it will affect what other people write, and therefore what range of opinions you can read. So what do we do? How do we handle this issue of media and free speech? Well, remember what John Mills said? Mankind would be no more justified in silencing one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. I think that's the key. Political correctness, vilification and hate speech laws, news media councils, they've all got to go. Why? Because they all do the same thing. They all put power over what you can and cannot say into the hands of someone else. You are held hostage by their sense of fairness or balance or their sensitivity to being offended. We should let each person argue their own point of view and present their own opinions with regard only for their own sense of fairness, their own sense of what is balanced and true and no one else's. Mind you, everyone else is free to argue back. It'll be noisy, a little bit chaotic, and I can't promise that it'll always be nice, but it will be free. It's either that or this. A government-appointed watchdog with the power to force the free press to do its bidding. Anyone with an eye on history knows what happens when a government gets power over the press. And it's not pretty. So the first thing we know about free speech is that it's actually very expensive. The second thing? That it's offensive. But the third thing that we know about free speech is that no matter what the price, it's worth it. I'm standing up for freedom of speech before it's too late, but I need your help. 
Post this video onto Facebook and Twitter. Pass it on to everyone you can, especially your local politicians. Let them know that if they support this news media council, then you are never going to support them. My name's Topher, and thank you for watching The Forbidden History of Unpopular People, Why Free Speech is Worth the Price. So that's what happens when you allow the government to sort of decide what's right and wrong and what you're adult enough to hear and not hear. Yeah, over over here, the, the laws are very complicated because we've had decades of building them up. Um, but he was right, yeah, at the same time one group was getting investigated for, you know, Islamophobia, the other side was getting investigated for, you know. Islamophobia, it's, it's yeah. perfect, right? Because um, we have laws limiting speech to a certain extent, but yeah, it's it's independent, so <laughs> the government can't, f they can fiddle with it, but it's a lot more difficult, they can't just tell it. That's bad, that's not. Well, here, I think that's what we're aiming for. And I, if I understand Jeannie correctly, that's what you're worried about, correct? Yeah, I mean, because you can't... <laughs> the, the same rules have got to apply. Okay. Um, I, I, I think this is a perfect situation where the government uh, shouldn't get involved. Um, but I, I'm already operating in the idea that a post-government society is not a bad thing. Um, they get involved in too much and they make it too hard for your voices to be heard. They replace your voice with the voice of experts and dismiss you when you raise your voice in a consultation. I've seen that in other countries with other things. Um, government has gotten too big pretty much everywhere. Um, I would rather not live in a country where the only way I'm able to see a video is by having dear emperor Kim Jong-un uh, decide that I can go to his fantastic site called Manbang and he will show me something that I might want to see. Um, I don't want to live like that. There's a reason why independent press is, is being paid attention to while you have things like the, the Grey Lady, the New York Times, who are not. Or Washington Post. Five retractions in less than three months? Come on, guys, you can do better than this. Oh, I'll and tell you the, the, funny, the funniest um, media ban in British history. It was okay. during the Troubles, you know, Northern Ireland. Right. And uh, the leader of one of the groups, who who claimed he was never a terrorist, he was always the political wing, which is questionable, to say the least. Jerry Adams, he's now an, M an MP. Um, but for a long period, whenever he appeared on any news media, they weren't allowed to use his actual voice. They word for word say, always had what he said, but it had to be said by an actor. <laughs> that that was the closest the government could get to banning his right to free speech in the UK, which was hilarious. 
you've got this so Northern Irish bloke speaking with this you know, English accent. You're like, oh, so God. basically, they literally, they literally banned his ability to speak. Yeah, but not what he could say. Yeah, not what he could say. Yes, it was hilarious, oh. and that that went on for a few years. It was yeah, till one government eventually went. This is stupid. <laughs> Funnily enough, it was it was Thatcher's government that came up with that idea. You know, I not okay. If you choose to run your government having a socialist society, right? When you can't afford things, right, that are for the people, you raise the taxes on all the people, um, and then everybody gets the same benefit, and and. That's if it's done correctly and fairly. I don't think I'm wrong in my understanding of that. Correct? Uh-huh. Very? Yeah. Okay. But she didn't want to do that. She no. wanted to nationalize everything and sell everything off and sell off the council houses and stuff. Um, and you have a society that has grown one way. You don't just yank them away from that one way and go, and there we go. That's not how that works. Um, I understand thinking that the free market is going to solve everything, and it's not. It's the free market doesn't solve anything unless you're a member of the board of one of the super corporations, in which case you're having a rather nice time. Well, what I was going to say about free market principles, and and I understand this stuff, because I've read Adam Smith, and in Wealth of Nations, and I I keep telling people, you have no understanding of economics unless you've read Wealth of Nations. The reason you don't is because in that book, prescribed hundreds of years ago, were ways the government should intervene to make life better for the general populace, right? Certain things they can do, ethical capitalism, ways you can enter into public-private partnerships with the rich and and make the rich think they're getting a lot back and they're not, they're doing more. Um, Yeah, it was basically a blueprint for what the Victorians did. Right. I mean, and it's a very well-written, although dry and boring, if you're going to read Adam Smith, you might want to skip the chapters on silver. They don't really add a whole lot to everything. But if you like economics, you want an understanding of of what that really looks like, then I highly recommend reading Wealth of Nations. Um, because your nation has no wealth if your people are starving. And a lot of times, what he refers to as the invisible hand is actually the public-private partnership. And I think people read that completely wrong. Yeah completely wrong if you have no background in economics you're reading adam smith and you're going he's totally free market well like he i just said extent, but was, not really his his what he wrote was basically what happened in victorian in victorian yeah. britain yeah. Uh, you had the industrial revolution we ended up with the largest empire in history mm-hmm. <laughs> everyone in the uk for the most part was better off than they were before and it's because, yeah, partly it was, it was, um, it wasn't top-down economics. It was, it was free market, but not in the way they do it now. No, exactly, and it's why I say I think libertarians in this country 
do themselves a disservice by just quoting Murray Rothbard and not reading things like Adam Smith. Yeah, I mean, the. If you really need to read him, the world economy got messed up after the Great Recession in uh, in the 20s. Mm -hmm. Um, And further messed up after World War II. uh, When. When. Yeah, the UK was no longer the biggest empire in the world because we gave it up because we couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. The US took over, but Russia was on the other side, China. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it just got messed up. <laughs> it did, it got messed up severely. But um, you do yourself a disservice if you call yourself a libertarian and have read Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations. Um, you well, I haven't do. read it, all it, of it, but. I have. I I'm, have I'm, not but big, I, I'm not big on economics, though. So yeah. I am, but you know, I mean, I I'm slogging through like tragedy and hope, you know. And I can't say that I call myself a libertarian, but I I can tell you that I'm getting a better understanding of of history and what's actually behind history. I think that makes me a, a better informed person, and I can talk about some stuff, you know, without sounding like an idiot all the time. That's kind of a big thing for me. Um, It's important to be well-read. You have to read Lenin. You have to read Marx. If you're going to call yourself a libertarian, you have to understand what the other side is talking about. You can't throw ideas by the wayside and go, I reject this out of hand without understanding it. And on that same sort of note, that's what the government wants us to do with the news. And I think that's wrong. And, yeah, they've messed with the education systems in such a way that people aren't as well-read as they used to be. No, people don't read. Actually, there's something out there now. um, Hang on. And I will grab a link for you guys, because if you're at all interested in news, (laughs) and I am, because I'll I'll sit there and, and read, and I will go and and do this sort of I will go and listen to a podcast um, so there's something out there called Spoken Layer right? and Spoken Layer is spoken editions of different news magazines um, for instance this one is The Intercept um, because there's a lot of really great journalism nobody pays attention to People have come to the thought that, you know, people would like the stuff if they could only listen to it. And Spoken Edition has a ton of different stuff on it. It has Wired. It has um, uh, Huffington Post. It has a Time Magazine. It has tons of stuff. Um, I tend to listen to The Intercept. Um, I I like the way they do journalism there. That's my bias. and I do have a bias. I have a pro-intercept bias, and that's not something I should admit, but I do because I can go. Th- I can email any reporter at the Intercept and ask to see their work, and they will show it to me. Yeah, I mean the the Intercepts. Oh, they're just they're just so behind the times. I mean, they actually, you'll never believe this, folks. They fact check. They don't just copy and paste from wherever (laughs) they got the story from. They actually go and, like, read the background stuff. Yeah. They do 
old school journalism and that's why it takes so long yeah it sucks up time if you're going to do spoken edition stuff um put a podcast player on your phone right whatever podcast player there is um and just set it to play when you're in the car driving somewhere when you're working out or whatever and when you're learning something you're not reading anything and you're not taking up any time love that um but that's how news gets disseminated now it gets disseminated through video gets disseminated through podcast form and it gets disseminated through being read to people and yeah i, I get I, I sometimes get people get confused don't me on social media because huh. they'll link to a story <laughs> and it's a video right and i'll go well where's the report and they're like, that right. is the report. And I'm like, no, 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 I want to read no, no, no. about it. <laughs> yeah, I want to read the background. Exactly. What do you want to do that for? It's like... <laughs> God, what you're reading for? Yeah. Um, that's that's Bill only Hicks. funny. Yeah. Bill Hicks. Yeah. <laughs> Bill Hicks went to a Waffle House and was sitting reading a book. And someone came up to him and asked him what he was reading for. Not what he was reading or what he was reading about, but what he was reading for. Media and kind of needed that <laughs> he needed material yeah um and I, I agree reading is done less and less these days and it's a shame it's a good way to learn but it's also a valid way to learn to get stuff read to you to hear it through a lecture um as also val oh, valid learning i read and lots and lots and lots mm -hmm. <laughs> i read enough for everybody in my household Mm -hmm. me too me too i'm just saying it is a lost art form and this is the way news is trending this is the way it's going to be disseminated i think um spoken edition right now is kind of a fringy thing but i think we're actually headed towards a point where the way we do news here is the way you're going to get news from major publications and people are probably going to pay for subscriptions to that Oh, the media desperately want them. everyone to be on subscription. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All the paywalls and all the, well, mainly oh, yeah. Murdoch Press, it must be said, <laughs> oddly yeah. enough. Uh, and but lots of the science journals do it now as well. You have to, yeah. you have to be a subscriber to read the journal, and you're like, yeah. uh, no thanks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I shouldn't say this on the air, but I have a friend <laughs> who used to be, she's doing a PhD in librarianship. And if I ever wanted a medical article, she used to uh, email me it. Mm -hmm. yeah, well, <laughs> Didn't matter you know. what journal it was in, because her job was scanning all the journals into their database. Mm -hmm. So she yeah. had access to every medical journal in the world. It's kind of handy. It's a shame she's not doing that job anymore. Well, uh, it, there is... Oh, God, what is the name of... There's... There's a place that just does that. They just disseminate articles. Yeah. And it's on the dark web. And they will find you whatever article you want. They're not majorly well-known, but they've been shut down a few times. And they, they will get you any scholarly article you want to read. And a lot of what happens is people come in looking for things and there'll be different doctors or different researchers who'll have access to, say, this thing somebody else is looking for. So it facilitates a kind of trade. 
which I don't think should really be illegal. Well, I think I remember I gave my friend's book chapter to you about how to use search engines. You did, yeah. and it's great. Clever girl. <laughs> yeah. I already knew it all, which is why she sent it to me <laughs> to check it. But, yeah. <laughs> but yes, that was part of her PhD. She was writing a chapter yeah. for medical students on how to search for information. Well, I mean, and people don't know this stuff because it's not taught anymore. Yeah, I mean, uh, the search engine stuff I sent you, I mean, that should be mm -hmm. taught to everybody. Um, well, because it speeds up searching for information hugely, putting modifiers in to cut down the number of results you get back. I mean, you know, yeah, it's it, people have noticed this about me when they ask me to look something up. I'll find it oh, yeah. a lot quicker than they would. That's because well, just force know, a habit. I know how to word things in the search yeah. engine. Search engines love me. I like. I'm very good with search engine queries and results, getting results back that are, are meaningful and not meaningless. And it's because I learned a long time ago, you ask a machine a question, kind of like you would ask a five-year-old a question. Do you, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Very pointed, um, exactly what you're looking for, excluding certain things, including certain things, quotes, exclamation points in certain spots. You've got to be as specific as you can possibly be. And then you'll get what you want, and you'll get it relatively quickly. I mean, And if you're not sure if you've got the right thing, just swap the position of a couple of the words and rerun it. Yep. It's, it's not really hard. It is kind of boring. And if you're not into research, this kind of thing would bore you to tears. Yeah, and I mean, it's all about weighted words and, yeah, mm -hmm. all the rest of it. But, yes. Yeah. It's, it's just the way search algorithms work, but... It's all app-based now, so yeah. these are skills a lot of people are never going to learn. No. Okay, I'm picking the next story. <laughs> um, Washington Post falsely acclaims Russian hacked Vermont utility because, oh my god, Russians from the Show Your Math department. Okay. When a mainstream press that isn't always good at what it does meets technology it doesn't understand... The end result is often frustrating, if not comedic. Hacking is certainly no exception, given that it's a realm where perpetrators are difficult to identify. Hard proof is often impossible to come by, and hackers worth their salt either leave false footprints or no footprints at all. Throw in a press that's incapable of identifying and avoiding its own nationalism, an often all-too-gullible intelligence industry influence, and you've got a fairly solid recipe for dysfunction when it comes to hacking-related news coverage. Some of the resulting coverage has been highly entertaining, such as CNN using a screenshot from the popular game Fallout 4 in a story about hacking and hoping no one would notice. Other examples have been decidedly more troubling, such as the Washington Post's epic faceplant over the holiday break. Last Saturday, the Post ran a story claiming that Russia was responsible for the hacking of Burlington Electric, a Vermont utility. According to the original Washington Post story, Government sources claim that code associated with Russian hacking operation dubbed Grizzly Step was detected at the utility. The story was stuffed to the gills with all manner of pearl clutching and outrage among politicians convinced Putin was actively trying to bring down the grid. Vermonters and all Americans should be both alarmed and outraged that one of the world's leading thugs, Vladimir Putin, has been attempting to hack our electric grid 
which we rely upon to support our quality of life, economy, health, and safety, Schumann said in a statement. This episode should highlight the urgent need for our federal government to vigorously pursue and put an end to this sort of Russian meddling. Unsurprisingly, the story quickly gained traction in the media, with numerous reports pouring out gasoline on the idea that Russian Russia has escalated its cyber offensives to include targeting sensitive American infrastructure. Many broadly speculated that other utilities had been compromised and that we were at the brink of war. A tweet from ABC News read, One of the world's leading thugs, Putin, has been attempting to attack our electric grid, says Vermont Governor Schulman. Uh, that's just a tweet. Uh, and while it's true the power grid is vulnerable to hackers, increasingly so courtesy of the internet of not-so-smart things, and it turns out that Putin had nothing to do with the particular attack on the Vermont utility. In fact, in a follow-up story and corrections made to the original report, the Post ultimately had to acknowledge that the malware in question was only found on one laptop, had nothing to do with the Russian government, and was never actually in contact with the grid itself. An employee at Burlington Electric Department was checking his Yahoo email account Friday and triggered an alert indicating that his computer had connected to a suspicious IP address associated by authorities with Russian hacking operation that had infiltrated the Democratic Party. Officials told the company that traffic with this particular address is found elsewhere in the country and is not unique to Burlington Electric, suggesting that the company wasn't being targeted by Russians. Indeed, officials say it is possible that the traffic is benign since this particular IP address is not always connected to malicious activity. That's obviously a pretty far cry from the hysteria bouncing around the newswires when the new year arrived. Thanks again to news outlets that are too eager to take breathless claims of a few anonymous officials as gospel without doing the heavy lifting required to first ensure that information is useful or accurate. As it turns out, the Post hadn't even bothered to contact Burlington Electric, which was forced to issue its own statement to the Burlington Free Press, clarifying what happened, and making it clear that the laptop was never in contact with any electrical system. All told, Burlington Electric had simply received a notification from Homeland Security sent to all utilities, warning them to keep an eye out for a particular malware. The company only found the malware and laptop in question after doing a scan of the company's systems. And as it turns out, the Russian malware in question could simply have been made by a Russian and purchased by anybody. Needless to say, the Washington Post then spent the lion's share of the next few days editing the story, changing the headline repeatedly, and walking back the story's claims. Though most of the stories regurgitating the post-original claims were never updated or corrected. Uh, reporting on hacking isn't easy. Disinformation is everywhere, and many outlets continue to illustrate they're easily manipulated. Thanks to a nationalism bias, they're somehow still unaware of. But the Washington Post simply failed to do even the basics, inflaming notable tensions between two giant countries because it couldn't bother to pick up the phone. Yes, Russia hacks us, and uses propaganda against us and other countries constantly. The United States does the same. Proof of either is often impossible to come by, but that doesn't mean it's not required before jumping to, it's still not required before jumping to conclusions. As tension rise, tensions rise, facts matter more than ever, and sloppy reporting only fuels, quite intentionally, those looking to take the less, these often dangerous and idiotic hyper-offensive policies to an entirely new us. I. Very. <laughs> my takeaway from the story is, oh my God, somebody at Burling Electric is still using Yahoo as his primary email. 
who I, is this yeah. idiot and why have they given him a job? Um, I, I don't understand how anybody could use Yahoo at all. It's been, I it, mean, it's it's the it's probably the most hacked company in the history of the planet. Um, well, I mean, exactly. I have it's a like Yahoo email, Mary. and I have to change the <laughs> password really regularly because they get hacked really regularly, and you get a little yeah. email turn up going, "Please change your password." The bigger thing with me is everybody keeps saying that they they hacked into government email servers. Um, the fuck they did. It it it's Gmail for fuck's sake. And and you notice how nobody's denying the information that was leaked. Everybody's just screaming about how how Russia did this horrible thing, and and and, and the whole thing is just really fucking tweaking me off because they're like, oh, and but and Obama says, but you know this is a a near nearly a decade worth of intrusion. Um, back the fuck up. Did did he say decade? I mean, is his version of decade the same version of decade that I have been almost 10 years? I mean, do you think that's what they're assuming? I mean, do you think he means a decade as in 10 years like I think a decade means? Because <laughs> if they knew that this shit was going on for a fucking decade, you're just, okay? you're just now deciding to poke at them in the national media are you fucking kidding me it's 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 a it's an asinine bunch of oh, ignorance well. that they're they're feeding people and they just expect everybody to go oh it was russia they're bad they're evil i i grew up through the cold war i don't want to <laughs> fucking see another one i'm just saying oh no i agree with you um i think it's can I just say something about John Podesta? Does everybody <laughs> here know that John Podesta's password was fucking password? Because I could have hacked him with that. With my fucking smartphone. But that's the man's password. It's password. So for the Democrats to be running around screaming about emails being stolen and accounts being hacked, they really, really need to get in tune with the tech times and get a fucking password manager. Well, and, and, and I want to know. I also want to know when when Google became the federal government. I'm just saying. Well, I mean, Google. Have you ever noticed, like, and maybe because I go digging for all this shit before any of you guys see it. Um, anytime the government releases something that um is a document that hasn't been uploaded to government servers yet it's on amazon servers yeah um that kind of cracks me up that i love that i fucking love that every time the fda or the dhs or anybody else wants any fool who wants to release a role who is part of the federal government puts all their documents up on an amazon cloud server which is the dumbest shit in the world because you could get to that pretty easy cloud computing is not really as uh, secure as you think. Um, although, really, no computing is safe when some kid's got time to sit in his mom's basement, you know, and prove that he's smarter than you. Um, so, I don't know whether Amazon or Google is the government, but uh, 
you know, it's looking pretty shady to me. Well, I mean, I've said it before. I'll say it. I'll be. I'll say it now, and I'll probably say it again, whenever somebody talks about this sort of thing. Yeah, hacking governments, hacking. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Five minutes after the internet was invented, the first hacker showed up, and they've been <laughs> hacking ever since. Yeah. Everybody hacks each other, all the time. Oh. When Obama went on about a decade, he was kind of right, but he was also misinformed. Ever since the internet was invented, governments have been trying to hack each other. That's it. They do it all constantly. A constant decade. It's like, really? They've been doing it a lot longer than that. And you've been doing it to them. Yeah. I mean, and that's, that's kind of the thing that kills me. I don't think there's this big red scare anymore that there used to be. Like when I was growing up, there was a huge red scare. <laughs> uh, you hack yourself once a week, Costello. Is that working out good for you? <laughs> um, I don't think there's this big red scare anymore. Um, and well, if you remember this time last year, the big news story was China had hacked oh, yeah. Sony. Yes, <laughs> must oh, be yes. a Christmas so, thing, obviously. Uh, <laughs> Socialists Power. only do hacking at Christmas because everybody must be distracted. <laughs> I don't know. It's, you, know. Uh, you would think that would be the one time they would take time off. I don't know. No, no, because uh, really socialist countries don't have Christmas. So, yeah. Because uh, all yes. religious stuff's banned. So, yeah. No, that's true. So, yeah, I just, I don't think there's this big fear of Russia anymore, so running around screaming, the Russians did it, the Russians did it, I don't think politically, I don't think that's doing the Democrats a lot of favors, whether it's no. true or whether it's not true. And the other problem I have is the FBI keeps asking to examine the DNC's servers, and the DNC keeps telling them no. Well, why? We want to examine your servers to see who hacked you or to do some forensic investigations on it. We only want our computer people to see if we won't release what we find. No, no. We're, we're no, back to no, what no. I said kind of during the missing email scandal. It's like, well, why yeah. don't they just check with the NSA? Because yeah, they've exactly. got everything. Um, <laughs> allegedly. I mean, exactly. I mean, exactly. And that's kind of how this goes. I, I don't you know, we have no control over how things are going to turn out. We can protest, we can send emails, we can turn up, we can march arm in arm, and hopefully we're not doing stupid, hateful things to one another. Oh, because oh, We've mentioned it before, the, the emails, right? If you're going to email yeah. each other. If you're really worried about being hacked, encrypt your email. <laughs> There are yeah. email clients that do it for you. Yeah. You used to one have to do it yourself because that's one of the things things. I used to write um, was encryption algorithms. But um, Lava of it used to be great until the government forced them out of business. Yeah. Lava of it was fucking awesome. Oh, there's um, there's other ones though. So there's yeah. hush there's hush mail. Yeah. That um, if you're doing something that's there are browser plugins that do it as well. So yeah. yes. Well. I, and can I recommend if you get a browser hug and do your a plug in, do yourself a favor. Do not get it from the Google Chrome store. 
Because there's <laughs> tracking on that. There's no way to anonymize any of that shit um, that comes from the Google Chrome store. So uh, get your apps elsewhere. Well, Do this is one reason Amazon. why I don't use Amazon Google also. Chrome unless I have to. Yeah. I tend to use Opera or Firefox mm -hmm. for everything. I like Opera. I do. Opera's really simple and sleek. Um, I and like has Firefox. encryption built in. Yeah. Well, I like Firefox too, except Firefox is helping build a, a backdoor into some of their stuff for my government. And I very against that. Very, very against that. I have real problems with that. Well, one reason I like um, Firefox is it's a lot quicker to turn off and on than a VPN. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> no. Set and choose exactly. when to have the VPN yeah. active. Yeah. No, and, and a virtual private network does, it's helpful. It is helpful, uh, but it's expensive. Um, and if you're looking for a semi-free alternative, I'm going to recommend Tunnel Bear. Um, actually, <laughs> not hacking, not hacking my website, but if you go to www.antinating.com, there's a page called Resources, and it has a whole bunch of vaping stuff on it, or vaping news and, and vaping activism, but it, it also has stuff on it for um, keeping yourself safe using your computer, and one of, one of the options there is Tunnel Bear, which like, lets you have a virtual private network up to a certain amount for free every month which if you don't do a lot of stuff that you don't want hidden from the world that's a pretty good deal and it works very well so um there's links for that there i i you know just throwing that out there um okay so miss genie is gone so now you can do the chickens that's what i was going to do <laughs> okay this is my pick for the next story. And the reason I picked this for my next story is I shared it. And it's TLDR. So I'm going to read it to you. The mysterious virus that could cause obesity. Randy is 62 years old and stands tall at six foot one. He grew up on a farm in Gladsford, Illinois in the 1950s. Randy was raised with the strong discipline of a farming family. From the time he was five, he would get out of bed at dawn. And before breakfast, he'd put his boots on and his jeans to milk the cows, lift hay, and clean the chicken hoops, coops. Day in and day out, no matter the weather or how he felt, Randy did his physically demanding chores. Only when his work was complete would he come to the kitchen table for breakfast. Tending to the chickens was hard work. It involved getting into the pen, cleaning, clearing birds out of their dirty cages, and chewing them into a holding enclosure. The process was always a little scary because the animals could be quite aggressive after being cooped up all night. On one of the occasions when Randy was 11, a particularly large and perturbed rooster swung its claw and gave him a good spurring on the leg. I had that happen too. Randy felt the piercing of his skin and squealed in pain. He said it felt like being gored by a thick fish hook. The rooster left a long gash and blood streamed down Randy's leg to his ankle. He ran back to the house to clean the wound and as chickens are filthy after a night in the cages. Some days later, Randy noticed a change in his appetite. He was constantly hungry. He felt drawn to food and thought about it all the time. He started eating in between meals and overeating when he finally sat down to dinner. Randy had always been a skinny kid, but in the course of the next year, he gained about 10 pounds. Parents thought it might be puberty, though it seemed a little early. His pudginess was also unusual given that everyone else in the family was thin. Randy was no stranger to discipline. 
He forced himself to eat less, switched to lower calorie foods, and exercised more. By the time he was a teenager, he was bouncing between 30 and 40 pounds overweight. He says, I gained all of this weight, even though they were some of my most active years on the farm. Randy's family supported his efforts to control his weight. They made lower calorie foods, gave him time to exercise, and didn't pressure him to eat things he didn't want. However, he continued to struggle with his weight through college. Randy kept thinking back to that moment everything changed. He had been the skinniest kid among his friends, and then he got caught by that chicken. Curious case of the Indian chickens. In Mumbai, Mumbai, India, Mikhail Durandar followed his father Vinod's footsteps in treating obesity. But Nikhail ran into the same obstacle that had bedeviled obesity doctors everywhere. The problem was I was not able to produce something for patients that could have meaningful weight loss. That was sustainable for a long time, he said. Patients kept coming back. Fate intervened in Durandar's life one day when he was meeting his father and a family friend, S.M. Adyanka, a veterinary pathologist, P.T. Adyanka, described an epidemic then blazing through the Indian poultry industry, killing thousands of chickens. He'd identified the virus and named it using part of his own initials, S-M-A-M-1. Upon necropsy, Andrianka explained that the chickens were found to have shrunken thymuses, enlarged kidneys, livers, and fat deposited in the abdomen. Sarandar thought this was unusual because typically viruses cause weight loss and not gain. Andrianka was about to go on, but Dorandar stopped him. Just said something that doesn't sound right to me. He said that chickens had a lot of fat in their abdomen. Is it possible that a virus was making them fat? Anjanka answered honestly, I don't know, and urged Durandar to study the question. The fateful conversation set Durandar on a path to investigate, as part of his PhD project, whether a virus could cause fat. Durandar pushed ahead and arranged an experiment using 20 healthy chickens. He infected the half of them with SMAM1 and left the other half uninfected. During the experiment, both groups of chickens consumed the same amount of food, but by the end of the experiment, only the chickens infected with the SMAM1 virus had become fat. Um, however, even though the infected chickens were fatter, they had lower cholesterol and triglyceride levels in their blood than the uninfected birds. It was quite paradoxical, Durandar remembers, because if you have fatter chickens, you would expect them to have greater cholesterol and circulating triglycerides, but instead those levels went in the wrong direction. To confirm the results, he set up a repeat experiment, this time using 100 chickens. Again, only the chickens with SMAM1 virus in their blood became fat. Durandar was intrigued. A virus, it seemed, was causing their obesity. Durandar thought of a way to test this. He arranged three groups of chickens in separate cages, one group that was not infected, a second group that was infected with the virus, and a third group that caged infected and uninfected chickens together. Within three weeks, the uninfected chickens that shared a cage with the infected ones had caused the virus and gained a significant amount of body fat compared to the isolated uninfected birds. Fat, it seemed, could indeed be contagious. Now, Durandar is a man of science. Get out of there. Sorry, my cat. Um, he is rational and calm, but even he has to admit the idea was startling. Does this mean that sneezing on somebody can transmit obesity? This now seemed possible in animals, but what about humans? Injecting the virus into people would be unethical, but Durandar did have a way to test patients to see if they contracted the virus in the past. Durandar said, at that time, I had my obesity clinic and I was doing blood tests for patients for their treatment. I thought, 
I might as well just take a little bit of blood and test for antibodies for SMAM1. Antibodies would indicate whether the patient was infected in the past with SMAM1. The controversial wisdom is that an antivirus for chickens does not infect humans, but I decided to check anyway. It turns out that 20% of the people we tested were positive for antibodies for SMAM1, and those 20% were heavier, had greater body mass index and lower cholesterol and lower triglycerides compared to the antibody negative individuals just as the chickens had. Durandar observed that people who had been infected with SMAM1 were an average 33 pounds heavier than those who weren't infected. The pounds keep coming. While Nikhil Dorandar was in India pursuing his curiosity about fat, Randy was looking for solutions of his own. After a brief stint as a teacher, he moved back to family land in 1977 because he loved farming. Randy married and had four children. At family dinners and holiday gatherings, he ate alongside everyone else, but tried eating less than the others. Still, his weight ballooned. By his late 30s, he topped 300 pounds. He remembers feeling hungry all the time, though. Even when he abstained, it didn't help him lose weight. I could have several good weeks of eating stringently, much less than others around me, but if I went off my diet for one meal, boom, the weight would come back. The effort to control his eating, even when it was successful, made Randy miserable. I can't tell you what it's like to be hungry all the time. It's an ongoing stress. Try it. Most people who give advice don't have to feel it. At the fall of 1989, Randy applied for a commercial driver's license. The application required a medical exam. After his urine test, the nurse asked Randy if he felt all right normal for the day, he replied. The nurse told Randy he would have to give a blood sample because she thought the lab had spilled glucose solution into his urine sample. The blood work showed that Randy's glucose level was near 500 milligrams um, DL. A normal reading is 100. The lab hadn't made a mistake with the urine sample after all. Randy's numbers were just off the charts. Alarmed, the nurse notified Randy's doctor who then tested his fasting blood sugar levels. The results showed that Randy had insulin resistance and severe diabetes. At 40 years old and 350 pounds, Randy was in trouble. If he didn't fix this problem soon, he would start to develop serious complications of diabetes, including cardiovascular disease and nerve damage. Having tried and failed multiple diets, Randy and his doctors decided the best hope was a hospital program for severe diabetics. The staff tested Randy's blood frequently to determine the optimal dosage and timing of insulin injections to regulate his blood sugar. Randy learned about the diabetic exchange diet, which allots patients a specific number of servings of meat, carbohydrates, vegetables, and fat. He cut out all refined carbohydrates, including bread. He says, I haven't had a slice of bread or pizza in years. But would even this program be enough? Randy had always had a difficult time controlling his weight, though not for lack of trying. He had been fighting fat since childhood by controlling portions, exercising, and avoiding social eating. But his discipline was no match for his own fat. Randy had to get his weight under control permanently. The hospital environment was helpful. However, despite strictly adhering to the diet, he only dropped a few pounds. The virus in Americans. After taking on a postdoctoral fellowship at University of Wisconsin-Madison under Dr. Richard Atkinson, Darandar was excited to finally be at liberty to pursue what he loved. He had an intense curiosity about viruses and was eager to get started finding the answers. However, when he tried to get samples of SMAM1 virus that he worked with in India, the U.S. Department of Agriculture refused to grant him an import license. He was deeply disappointed. Unable to get SMAM1, Dharandar approached a company that sells viruses for research. Their catalog listed some 50 adenoviruses. He said, I was going to order the human adenovirus, but there, were, there was no adenovirus. There were 50 human 
adenoviruses. So I struck again. I wondered, how do I go about this? Should I start with number one, two, three, number 50, 49, 48? So it's a bit of guesswork and mostly luck. We decided to work with number 36. We like 36 because it was antigenically unique, meaning it did not cross-react with other viruses in the group and antibodies to other viruses would not neutralize it. This was a serendipitous choice. It turned out that AD36 had similar qualities to SMAM1 in chickens. Atkinson thought that AD36 might very well be a mutated form of SMAM1. When Durandar infected chickens with AD36, their fat increased and their cholesterol and triglycerides decreased, just as it happened with SMAM1. Durandar wanted to make sure that he was not getting a false positive, so he injected another group of chickens with a virus called Cleo to ensure that other viruses were not also producing fat in chickens. <clears throat> Additionally, he maintained a group of chickens who had not been injected with anything. When he compared the three groups, only the AD36 group became fatter. Doran Darjan tried the experiment in mice and marmosets. In every case, AD36 made animals fatter. Marmosets gained almost three times as much weight as the uninfected animals. Their body fat increased by almost 60%. And now came the big question, would AD36 have any effect in humans? Doran Dar and Atkinson tested over 500 human subjects to see if they had antibodies to AD36, indicating they had been infected with it at some point in their lives. This team found that 30% of subjects who were obese tested positive for AD36, but only 11% of non-obese individuals did, a 3 to 1 ratio. In addition, non-obese individuals who tested positive for AD36 were significantly heavier than those who had never been exposed to the virus. Once again, the virus was correlated with fat. Next, Durandar devised an even more stringent experiment. He tested pairs of twins for the presence of AD36. He explained it turned out exactly the way we hypothesized that the AD36 positive co-twins were significantly fatter compared to their AD36 negative counterparts. Of course, it's unethical to infect human subjects with viruses for research, so the study can't be perfectly confirmed. But Thorndar says, this is the closest you can come to showing the role of the virus in humans short of infecting them. A new way to manage fat is tough to blame. Randy's physicians had been treating him for years and knew that his patient's struggle was difficult and ongoing. The physician referred Randy to an endocrinologist, Richard Atkins, at the University of Wisconsin, who was having some success with difficult obesity cases. Randy went to see Atkinson knowing that if he didn't get his fat under control, it was going to kill him. The first thing Randy noticed about Atkinson was that he was kind. He didn't make Randy feel guilty about his weight. Other places put the blame on you, Randy says. They go back to your past. What did you do to get here? It was very judgmental. Atkinson did none of that. He said, okay, we're here now. How do we fix it? He was very future-oriented. Atkinson had designed a long-term program to treat obesity, explained to his patients that obesity is a chronic disease and they would be in treatment forever. In the first three months of the program, patients would meet several days per week and attend lecture explaining obesity and the underpinnings of fat. After that, visits decreased to one every two weeks and then one every two months. Those who started regaining weight were asked to resume more frequent visits. Subjects had to commit to the full program in order to enroll. Atkinson also introduced Randy to his new postdoctoral assistant, a young scientist from India, Dr. Nikhail Dorandar. Dorandar examined Randy and studied his blood samples. Randy tested positive for antibodies to AD36, meaning he had likely been infected with the virus at some point in the past. Randy remembered being scratched by that rooster as a child that afterward his appetite had exploded and he started gaining weight quickly. 
His troubles with food and rapid fat accumulation, he understood it all now. But he was like the chickens, the marmosets, the twins, and other humans in the study. And this infection with AD 36 was helping his body to accumulate fat. He said, what Atkinson and Durandar did for me changed my life. They made everything make sense. It was very liberating and very empowering. How does a virus lead to fat? How would a virus like AD 36 cause fat? Atkinson explains, there are three ways we think that AD 36 makes fatter. It increases the uptake of glucose from the blood and converts it to fat. It increases the creation of fat molecules through fatty acid synthesis, an enzyme that creates fat, and it enables the creation of more fat cells to hold all the fat, vitamin E stem cells, which can turn into either bone or fat, into fat. So the fat cells that exist are getting bigger, and the body is creating more of them. And the researchers acknowledge that the rooster scratch may have been the start of Randy's infection. They are cautious. The transmittability of AD 36 from chickens to humans has never been directly studied. Though Dorandar and Atkinson have conducted several strong studies showing the contribution of AD 36 to fatness, skepticism remains. Atkinson says, I remember giving a talk at a conference where I presented 15 different studies in which AD 36 either caused or was correlated to fatness. At the end of it, a good friend said to me, I just don't believe it. He didn't give a reason. He just didn't believe it. People are really stuck on eating and exercise as the only contributions to fatness, but there is more to it. Durandar adds, there's a difference between science and faith. What you believe belongs in faith and not in science. In science, you have to go by the data. I have faced people who are skeptical, but when I ask them why they can't pinpoint a specific reason, science is not about belief. It is about fact. There is a saying, in God we trust, all others bring data. Yeah, I've been mauled by multiple chickens uh, yeah, in the last few too. years. Yeah, mm -hmm. I was mauled yeah, by when I was about fourteen. Yeah, I mean, I've been, I've been aware of uh, this particular thing for quite a while. I read about it a long time ago, but it was reported in, I think, it might have been BBC's Horizon Science Program that did a Probably. show on it a while ago. Uh huh. But yeah, I mean. And yes, you get to the end of the, the article there and it, yep, health, public health these days. It's yep. not it's not about the science anymore. It's basically right. about business slash religion. Because yeah. in, in this case, the two are completely interchangeable. Yeah, Most religions they, they, are businesses. Yeah. So, it's, yeah. It's just amazing to me that this is okay. Well, I mean, the the biggest advancement in medicine that people probably don't realize mm -hmm. is the proton pump inhibitors. Yeah. Along with, I think it's two antibiotics, and they can now cure ulcers, H stomach ulcers. H yeah, well, if yeah. you have them, it's H by that, that only came about because <laughs> an Australian doctor who kept getting dismissed by the worthies, the people in charge of research and etc. Yeah. Ignored him, so he infected himself with pylori and then cured himself. You know, and, and exactly. And, and medicine is not supposed to be about that. Yeah. Medicine is supposed to be about fact and truth and, geez, all the things I think journalism is supposed to be about. Yeah. <laughs>
Um, well, in a way, journalism is kind of, it's basically, it is a science. Yeah. <laughs> in some ways. But in all writing is a science. Yeah, well, Different branches I mean, of it as well. I don't know. I, I have, I have to say, I think it's probably really important <clears throat> that people actually know about the chicken thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, because yeah, I, I'm not, I'm not a thin girl. I've never, I, I was thin, but I've never been super thin. And I lived on a farm. We always had chickens, and I did. I got gored. I still have a scar on my leg where I got gored by one of our roosters and he was a mean son of a bitch. And can I say that that's what made me chubby later in life? No, but it's nice to know that I should look at my blood glucose level. And I'm not saying that I'm super paranoid or anything, but I did start, uh, start drinking blueberry leaf tea and and taking a cinnamon um capsule every before i eat because those are supposed to naturally come control blood sugar just in case um, yeah i mean no uh, um, it's hurt me any i i i am classed now as obese uh yeah. due to well my other health conditions have just piled on yeah. weight because i wasn't active enough mm-hmm. um but it's it's stable and mm-hmm. Yeah, I regularly get blood tests, and my right. blood sugar level is completely normal. So yeah. Yeah. Well, oh, and yeah, I've right. I've even had ultrasounds, and I've got no fat build up on the inside. It's all surface in my case. So, you know yeah. what's really weird? It, it's I think my my new kitten. Once we let herself be him self be, he just ballooned up. I mean, he looks he looks like um. He looks like normal from the Garfield cartoons <laughs> now. He's a chubby little guy. But when you touch him, he's completely solid. And I'm like, that's that's not how animals are supposed to be. I don't think he has a health issue, but uh, we're moving the animals to diet food now. <laughs> <laughs> Just in case. Oh, uh, uh, you've, you've got that other um, virus to worry about, the cat one. That makes you subservient to cats. Have you seen the stories about that? I have. Yeah. Um, and it's it's toxoplasmosis, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it makes you, know, you like cats. <laughs> what the, yeah. What, what a, a strange virus. Thing. Yeah. What a horrible thing. Yeah. So, yeah, and I know I didn't mention this, but this is pretty interesting. Um, this comes from the New York Department of Health, and I'm going to read this um because i dig viruses that's it's one of the things i took away from like semi-childhood where i used to like in the old days you would have to use newspapers so i had albums full of newspaper clippings where viruses were breaking in different places and i used to just track them because i was a weird nerdy child (laughs) Um, so viruses are kind of something I'm still really interested in. And this one's particularly interesting because it's now jumped species three times. It's gone from bird to cat to human, which isn't a huge thing, but did anybody see the movie Outbreak? (laughs) There's a reason you're concerned about these things. So anyway, um, 
So this is from the New York Department of Health. Health Department is investigating investigation of H70, H7N2 influenza in shelter cats confirms risk to humans is low. For now. One person of more than 350 people screened has been found with H7N2. This person is a veterinarian who has prolonged close exposure to respiratory secretions of sick cats at animal care centers of NYC's ACC Manhattan shelter and has recovered from mild illness. Precautionary guidance issued for people who recently adopted a cat from an NYC shelter or rescue group. December 22, 2016. The health department today announced an ongoing investigation of how an outbreak of low pathogenic avian influenza H7-2N strain of influenza A virus among cats housed at animal care centers at NYC's ACC shelters confirms that the risk to humans is low. One person has been found with a presumptive diagnosis of this virus, which was identified by the health department lab testing and preliminarily confirmed by the CDC and prevention lab testing yesterday. Further testing will be ongoing in the coming days. The infected person is a veterinarian who was involved in obtaining respiratory specimens from sick cats at the Manhattan shelter. The illness was mild, short-lived, and has resolved. More than 160 ACC employees and volunteers, including several people who had similar exposure to sick cats, were screened by the health department and not found to have an infection with H7N2 virus. Additionally, the health department contracted more than 80% of the people who adopted cats from the Manhattan shelter and none is suspected of having H7N2. There have been two previous documents, documented cases of H7N2 infection in the United States. One in a person managing an outbreak of a virus in turkeys and chickens in 2002 and the other with an unknown source in 2003. Both of these patients also had a mild illness and recovered. This is the first reported case due to exposure to an infected cat. There has been no documented human-to-human -human transmission. Our investigation confirms that the risk to human health from H7-2N is low, um, but we are urging New Yorkers who have adopted cats from a shelter or rescue group within the past three weeks to be alert for symptoms in their pets, said Health Commissioner Dr. Mary T. Bassett. We are contacting people who may have been exposed and offering testing as appropriate. As a precaution, the health department is issuing guidance to healthcare providers and veterinarians today to provide information on how to manage these cases. So basically, they're telling people that you should get the flu vaccine, even though the flu vaccine is not specifically targeted to that. It will still help you, blah, blah, blah. Um, since the last week, more okay, this is what has happened to the cats. Since last week, more than 100 cats have tested positive for H7N2 across all NYC shelters. This was expected because the virus is highly contagious among cats, and cats are sometimes moved between shelters. All the newly infected cats are experiencing mild illness and have been separated from other animals in shelters. They're expected to recover. One cat was admitted to the shelter with H7N2 infection died. ACC suspended adoption of the cats once the virus was discovered. The health department working with the ACC, the ASPCA, and the New York Emergency Management has identified a location where the cats will be quarantined soon, which will allow ACC to resume full intake and adoption of cats. The ASPCA will resume operational costs and manage the care of the cats. Um, so cats are the only species that have tested positive for H72N. Um, 
they haven't found it in rabbits or, or dogs, but I don't know. Anytime a virus does that, they wind up recombining in strange ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? Anytime that happens, they... Also, also people should note, if you're out there and you didn't already know, you can get flu shots for your cat. It's one of the only animals you, you can get flu shots for. Now, see, I did not know you could get flu shots for your cat. That's pretty mm -hmm. good. So that's that's a good thing to know. I mean, I don't think they talk about that much here. No. So, uh, the one they use, the, the, the cat flu injection is related to the, um, you know, the HIV injection cats can Correct. also get. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. FL, yeah Cat, cats get lots of injections other animals don't get. Yeah. Because, yeah, giving them tablets is challenging. <laughs> um. Challenging. That's, that's one way to put it. Yeah. If you like your skin... Yeah, giving giving a cat an injection is a challenge. But yes, cat, I... cats cats get ill a lot, <laughs> and they don't appear to a lot of the illnesses cats get. You don't know they're ill. Yeah, uh, no, because they hide. They yes. hide illnesses. Because in deep down, cats are predators. Well. Cats are predators. They're not supposed to be vocal. They're not supposed to be affectionate. My cat is... I think my cat has munchkinism. Do you know what I mean? You know what a munchkin cat is? Where they're, like, really short. And yeah. Developmentally, they're not right. I think that's what my cat has. Because he's very vocal. He's very sweet. He has a hard time sitting up sometimes. He's just... He's not well. He's my special little guy. So, which is fine. He's sweet. Um, I'm happy with him. Um, the cats were the best thing that happened around Christmas. So, do you want to? Is there anything in here that you're interested in? Well, there's the DUI stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I. Hmm, yeah. I, I have to admit that the, the DUI stuff is possibly some of the most interesting stuff that's happened recently. Although um, when Australia started giving people on inner tubes uh, tickets for being drunk while in a vehicle, I thought that was pretty interesting and that's happened since the new year. Yeah, Australia, different rules to everywhere else. Yeah. Different. Uh yeah, I I would say yeah, more than just different. They take officious to a new level. Yeah. You know, they were a penal colony and it's like they've never gotten past that. <laughs> I think we have this idea that uh Australia is this rugged and wild place and it was for the aborigines who lived there originally i don't think that that has continued um in so far as anybody knows so are we talking about the the caffeine one or the other one well either it's up to you either or both i guess okay um so this one 
I hate to, I don't want to say I found it offensive, but it really pissed me off. So, um, California man fights DUI charge for driving under the influence of caffeine. Attorney for Joseph Schwab charged with driving under the influence of a drug when his blood test showed only caffeine calls the charge unheard of. Caffeine may be the nootropic brain drug of choice in Silicon Valley, but an hour's drive north in Solano County, California, the stimulant could get you charged with driving under the influence. That is according to the defense attorney, Stacy Barrett, speaking on behalf of her client, Joseph Schwab. After being pulled over on 5 August 2015, Schwab was charged by the Solano County District Attorney with misdemeanor driving under the influence of a drug. Almost 18 months later, Schwab is preparing to go to trial. The only evidence the DA has provided of his intoxication is a blood test showing the presence of caffeine. Schwab was driving home from work when he was pulled over by an agent from the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control who was driving an unmarked vehicle. The agent said Schwab had cut her off and was driving erratically. 36-year-old Union Glazer was given a breathalyzer test, which showed a 0.00 blood alcohol level, his attorney said. He was booked into county jail and had his blood drawn, but the resulting toxicology report came back negative for benzodiapines, cocaine, opiates, THC, crispidol, a muscle relaxant, methamphetamine, MDMA, oxycodone, and zolpidem. The sample was screened a second time by a laboratory in Pennsylvania, according to documents provided to The Guardian, where the sole positive result was found for caffeine, a substance likely coursing through the veins of many drivers on the road at any given time. I've never seen this before, said Barrett. I've never even heard of it. Barrett has filed for a motion for the case to be dismissed because the charges were not bought until June 2016, nearly 10 months after the incident. If that motion is denied, Schwab will take his case to a jury on 11 January. Shannon Henry, Chief Deputy District Attorney for Solano County, said in a statement that her office was conducting further investigation into this matter. The charge of driving under the influence is not based on the presence of caffeine in his system, she added. Bart counters that if the prosecution has evidence of a different drug in her client's system, it should have provided those to her based on rules governing criminal proceedings. I've not been provided with any evidence to support the theory of prosecution for a substance other than caffeine at this time, she said. Nor have I received any statements, reports, etc., documenting any ongoing investigation since the toxicology report dated 18 November 2015. Henry declined to comment further, citing the right to a fair trial. It's really stupid, said Jeffrey Zender, a forensic toxicologist who frequently testifies in court cases. Over 41 years, Zender said he has never seen a prosecution for driving under the influence of caffeine. If that's the case, they better come and arrest me, he joked. Zender was informed about the case by Barrett, but has not been contacted to testify on either side. California Vehicle Code describes a drug as any substance besides alcohol that could affect a person in a manner that would impair to an appreciable degree his ability to drive normally. Making that case with caffeine would be difficult, Zender said because the prosecutor would have to show that impaired driving was specifically caused by caffeine and not by other circumstances. There are no studies that demonstrate that driving is impaired by caffeine, and they don't do the studies because no one cares about caffeine, he said. As for Schwab, he just wants this ordeal to be over. In a statement provided to The Guardian by his attorney, he said his reputation has been damaged. Don't believe me that I only had caffeine in my system until I showed them the lab results, he said. I want the charges to be dismissed and my name to be cleared. Oh, California. California strikes again, yeah. 
Um, if this does go to court, you got to hope whichever judge presides, one, not only throws it out, uh, oh, yeah. and two, finds the prosecutor for wasting court time. Oh, yeah. I mean, that was I mean, ridiculous. it's ridiculous. Yeah. It is ridiculous. Um, so, from from what I'm aware, the only studies done on with caffeine to do with driving and motor function say right. it increases your ability to drive and do mechanical tasks, <laughs> not inhibit <laughs> you from doing them. So, yeah, what the prosecutor's I mean, going to come up with, I've no idea. And as the lawyer says, if they introduce evidence saying there's another drug, th- th- whatever judge is going to be really annoyed at them. Mm-hmm. Well, unless it's one of your crazy judges, but we won't know that unless it goes to court. Um, <laughs> That's very true. Yeah, one of our appointed wackadoodle judges. Um, okay, court ruling. This is another DUI case, um, but it's different. <laughs> This is from Phoenix, Arizona. Court ruling a setback for prosecutors in medical pot DUI cases. Phoenix, medical marijuana users cannot be convicted of driving while under the influence of the drug. Absent proof that they were actually impaired, the State Court of Appeals ruled Thursday. <coughs> in a major setback for prosecutors, the judges pointed out that Arizona, unlike some other states, has no law that spells out a certain level of tetrahydrocarbonyl, THC, in the blood of a person that is presumed to be impaired. THC is the psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. And according to the evidence here, there is no scientific consensus about the concentration of THC that is generally sufficient to impair a human being, appellate judge Diane Johnson wrote. What that means is every case where prosecutors charge medical marijuana use with breaking the law requires expert testimony to show that a particular individual was impaired at that particular level of THC. This case involves Nadir Ishak, who was stopped by police in Mesa in 2013 after the officer saw his vehicle drift out of its lane. The officer testified Ishak admitted to smoking marijuana that morning, that his eyes were bloodshot and watery, and that during a field sobriety test, he experienced body tremors and eye tremors. Ashok was charged with driving while impaired to the slightest degree and a separate charge of driving with marijuana in his body. Jurors acquitted him of the first charge but convicted him of the second. Johnson said Ashok was denied a fair trial when the city court judge refused to allow him to tell jurors he had a state-issued card allowing him to use the drug legally. She said that would have provided evidence to the jury that Ashok was legally entitled under the 2010 Arizona Medical Marijuana Act to use the drug and have it in his system. Potentially more significant, Johnson, writing for the two-on majority, said the trial judge also erred in ruling that it was up to a shock to prove he was not impaired, even to escape the charge of driving with marijuana in his body. What voters approved in 2010 spells out that being a legal marijuana user does not exclude someone from being charged with driving under the influence of the drug, but it also says a patient cannot automatically be considered under the influence of marijuana solely because of the presence of metabolized components of marijuana that appear in insignificant concentration to cause impairment. The Arizona Supreme Court already ruled the mere presence of metabolites, the chemical compounds that cause the breakdown of marijuana in the body, is insufficient by itself to approve impairment. That's because those chemicals can remain in the body for days or weeks. 
In this case, however, the court records show that Isaac had a concentration of 26.9 nanograms per milliliter of THC. Mesa prosecutor Craig Jones argued that the 2010 law requires medical marijuana cardholders who are arrested to prove through expert testimony that the amount of THC in their blood is insufficient to cause impairment in people generally or in any person. He said it's irrelevant whether specifically defended was actually impaired. But Johnson said that's not how the law works. Nothing in the statute requires a cardholder to present expert testimony or precludes a cardholder from offering non-expert testimony on the question of whether the cardholder was impaired due to THC she wrote. Further supporting the conclusion is the reality that at present there is no presumptive impairment limit established by Arizona law, the judge wrote. In contrast, Colorado statutes say that anyone with a THC level above 5 nanograms is presumed impaired. And Johnson said in this case there was no foundation for the state's expert to testify that a THC level of 26.9 nanograms would cause an impairment risk. And a shock. On the other side of the equation, Ashok's own expert said there is no consensus about the concentration of THC that causes impairment. The expert did testify that 26.9 is a high number and it can impair some people, but I can't tell you that number will impair all people. The ruling was not unanimous. Appellate Judge Randall Howe said he reads the statute and case law to give medical marijuana cardholders an affirmative defense they can present at trial. He says that means it's up to the person arrested to not only prove that he or she is authorized to use marijuana for medical purposes, but that the concentration of the drug is insufficient to cause impairment. The defendant bears the burden of proof on the defense, however, and Aishiak did not show, either in cross-examining the state's expert or presenting his own, that his THC concentration did not leave him impaired. Thursday's decision is the latest in the string of appellate court rulings that have limited the ability of prosecutors to bring various charges against medical marijuana patients. These range from limiting the kind of evidence prosecutors can use to bring drugged driving charges to requirements for law enforcement officers to give back drugs taken from legal users. And it comes just two days after another division of the appellate court slapped down efforts by Maricopa County Attorney Bill Montgomery to use the federal ban on marijuana to block necessary permits for a medical marijuana dispensary. So there's that. So fun times in Arizona. <laughs> Fun times in Arizona. I mean, they just. Yeah, I mean, Arizona even the judges can't agree on. Yeah. On it. Nobody. So, no. Yeah. yeah. But it's it is wrong bad. that the judge in this guy's case wouldn't let him tell the jury about his medical card. Yep. Exactly. Because that's that's vitally important evidence, uh, mm -hmm. and he'd have probably been dismissed of the second charge as well, because the exactly. jury would have quite rightly gone. Oh, well, he's mm -hmm. supposed to be taking it. <laughs> so, of course, it was in his system. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, let's see, where was I? Tonight. Oh, Buckyballs. So, does <laughs> any, anybody remember when Buckyballs got taken off the shelf? Because they were dangerous children. <laughs> Uh, and then Buckyball sued the government, and it's gone back and forth for a few years. Okay. Uh, the Consumer Product Safety Commission yanked it off the shelf. So this is a blog post written by a former commissioner from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Zen Magnets, the tiny Colorado company that has challenged the CSP's action regulating small, powerful magnets, will be having a very good Thanksgiving this year. That is because, once again, Zen has shown that it's possible to fight the federal government and win. 
Today, the United States Courts of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit ruled that the CSPC's safety standard banning the magnet sold by Zen did not withstand judicial scrutiny. The court told the agency that if it wanted to regulate magnets, it needed to follow the requirements of the Consumer Product Safety Act and that it should go back to the drawing board and rethink its justifications for the rule. The CPSA requires that the agency do a cost-benefit analysis and make findings that identify the nature and degree of the risk for injury weighed against the public's need for the product and then regulate it in the least burdensome manner. The court found that the agency's analysis was deficient. The court found that the agency overstated the number on injuries and neglected to consider public utility of the many uses of the product. In other words, the statutory requirement to weigh the costs and benefits of a proposed action is a critical part of regulating. My experience in the last several years of my term as the CPSC commissioner was that the statutory requirement was seen as an annoyance rather than as a tool for informed decision-making. Perhaps the Tenth Circuit decision will change the agency's approach to using the statutory tool. The agency's approach to regulating magnets has been characterized by an ends-justifies-means mindset. The agency worked to cut off the ability to sell the magnets through retail channels by asking retailers to stop selling the product. The agency sought to recall the product, knowing that consumers would not respond to the recall, but also knowing that this device could stop further sales. The agency sued those few distributors who had the fortitude to challenge the agency's notion. One company that has stayed the course is Zen, and its success rate has been quite remarkable. The administrative law judge that heard the recall action ruled in Zen's favor. Now, an appellate court has found the rule the agency issued to ban future sales of the product is defective because it blew by statutory requirements that provide a, for a balanced decision-making. Zen is like a little Yorkie Terrier that has grabbed a hold of the ankle of the CPSC and will not let go. Yet through its determination to challenge what it believes is overreached by the federal government, it has forced the agency to re-examine its approach to a serious issue. It may be that, through Zen's actions, the CPSC will come to understand that it can protect consumer safety without regarding basic notions of due process. Maybe not. But still. Um... That was from Zen that used to distribute them, but it, I assume that ruling would also apply to Buckyballs since they were the first ones yanked off the product by the Yeah, it's amazing. I mean, they, they try to burn magnets. Mm-hmm. I mean, what? Well, magnets, flavors, batteries. Yeah. I mean, come over to the UK and buy huge magnets over here. It's great. Hmm. <laughs> really sad that we'd have to go i think the only the only magnets that are regulated over here are giant industrial ones because obviously they they can turn off people's pacemakers so yeah like the ones used (laughs) in mri machines or the the big the big metal moving yeah things in junkyards yeah those are the only ones over here that are regulated Normal magnet that you can hold in your hand. Yeah, you can get them as big as you like over here. Well, I mean, they're they're kind of like balls that kind of stick together and you make different shapes. shapes yes. Oh, I'm aware yeah. what they are. Yeah, we've got them over here. We've had them for decades. Um, of course you do. And they probably allow you to still have lawn darts and shit too. Yep. Hey, hey, we're in darts? Europe. We're allowed real darts. Oh my God. They have lawn darts, y'all. You know how long it's been since we had them banned? Because of the children. Well, yeah, well, it was quite all, confusing over here where, when all the Nerf products started showing up. Because, <laughs> yeah, we've still got the, the 
the spring-loaded guns that fire the the darts with a sucker on the end. <laughs> They're lethal. <laughs> you can take someone's eye out with one of those, but we're still allowed them. It's great. <laughs> it's, it's, it's amazing. What the difference between people believing you're an adult. Yeah. Hell, you, you, you guys still sell, you know, you guys still have legalized medical marijuana over there. It's like you're an adult or something. I don't know. And, you know, your health authorities are in favor of vaping. It's it's like they think people are adults. Well, we don't, don't actually that. technically have legalized medical marijuana. <laughs> well, you've, you've legalized, what, CBDs? No. Kind of? Or are they under no, medical? No, 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 no. MHRA just said they're going to start regulating them. Of course they so are. So they've been withdrawn from sale. But, uh... <laughs> But yeah, but that's being argued a lot, same as it is everywhere. THC yeah. on CBD, so yeah. Well, yeah, but, but they, I mean, they was... literally it was end of last year they took CBD off the shelf. It's a shame because you know, for people that have epilepsy, that nothing else works for them. That works for people with chronic diseases. It helps them. It well, yeah, I mean, they're just forcing sense. people to use heat, not burn, and traditional herbage. Yeah, exactly. Which I don't. How does that help? If you're really into risk reduction, doesn't not burning leaves help you? Yeah. I, mean, I don't know. It must be crazy. I mean, they've they've um they've reduced the the jail time. They've basically reduced how how bad cannabis is in the UK. <laughs> um, it used to be you know class A. Uh, yeah, but they've reduced it so it's not as serious. But yeah, no, still illegal here. Um, certain, I think, certain people with basically terminal cancer are allowed mm -hmm. cannabinoids, but not the gen, not the general populace. Oh yeah, God, we wouldn't want people to. You know, we do have medicalized, but it's in very, very specific circumstances. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's how it's going to be here um, in Florida. Cause I think they're made, they're, they made that legal, but, you know, you, you ask the health departments and they look at you like a deer in the headlights. Well, like, I mean, it, we have to come up with a rule. Well, yeah, but it makes me passed. laugh because I've known a guy in my life who had mm -hmm. um, bone cancer mm -hmm. the most horrific painful cancer imaginable right and, but he is given basically pure opium <laughs> tablets right. that he takes every morning 10 milligrams of pure opium See, but, this is but, so but cannabis oh terrible <laughs> well, yeah but pure opium is going to I mean, Back I'm, under I'm the old that. driving regulations, he used to be able to drive. You did not want to be accepting a lift from that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine why. Imagine, when you're on opium all the time, you really don't give a shit. <laughs> you, think. you can't get any more relaxed, basically, uh, apart from being dead. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so I mean, he's definitely the most easygoing person I have ever met in my life. <laughs> yeah, but that's not really, it's not good for your digestive system. It's, it's really just, like, 
dead juju all around. No, 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 pure opium. It's fine. It's even technically non-addictive. If you're in enough pain, everything's technically non-addictive. But I mean, oh no, no, I pure pure opium doesn't cause dependency. It's really weird. Well, they don't know why. <laughs> it's got to affect a different section of your brain. Then, yeah. What I was going to say is, this reminds me of, of, and I think I talked about it before. I was reading the book "Chasing the Scream" by Johan Hari, uh -huh. um, which was a great read. Um, I highly recommend that if you are interested in the history of prohibition of drugs in America. It, it's a very good history, and it also branches out into societies that have had heroin-addictive people and what's happened when they've prescribed like small medicinal amounts of it for them. And it, it, It's a very interesting book, but in Chasing the Scream, Johan Hari talks about how... Um, the, the government's very concerned about people having opioids, right? But if you go and you get open heart surgery or you have colorectal cancer surgery or you have a hip replacement, a knee replacement, broken back, you go into the hospital and you're given basically the, the pure morphine. Shit. Yeah. Yeah. Pure, like morphine on a daily basis. And according to the way that the scientists are talking about addiction, you should be a, a fucking junkie when you leave, and you're not. Yeah, yeah it's because yeah. the addiction seems to be being caused by the impurities. So if you get completely lab-pure stuff, you don't get the dependency. Well, I, I they really don't, they don't understand it completely. But yeah. Well, I think it's that, and, and I think the other thing they've talked about is dependency has a lot to do with loneliness. Like yeah, people do. who feel who feel alienated from society are more likely to become drug addict junkies. You know what I mean? And yeah. and I just I find the book Chasing the Scream is one of the most interesting things I've ever read about drugs. Well, when it comes down to your country, well, and most of the world, when it comes to the war on drugs, blame the Protestants. Well, you know what? But I I can <laughs> I can blame my country for getting everybody started on the same page. Of yeah. this ridiculous crusade, which has done nothing to help anybody, and but it's criminalized it's, a good portion of the population. It's it's a it's a it's a religious pogrom. It's nothing to do with science, health, anything exactly. else. Well, it's it's like the whole thing with vaping. Them saying that uh, you know the only the only way to quit is to quit, quit or die, quit or die. That's that's religious fervor. Yes. Nothing to do with science. There's no accuracy in the information there. It's it's just it's faith and juju and voodoo and has nothing to do with real science. And certain groups of scientists need to be told that no, we don't inject our e-liquid in certain places. <laughs> that would uh, that would be interesting. The one I mentioned just before the show. I won't talk about yeah, it on I, air. Yeah. People yeah. can go look it up. <laughs> yeah, you you, you so might they can have the horror in there head when they read it well, and go what? At least, it, at least it wasn't injected into a live person I guess. Um, it kind of was. <laughs> sort of maybe. Sort of. Well it, it is a live person if you're a southern baptist protestant. <laughs> well not just that if you're a, a evangelical christian that's a live person. Yeah. At least a good portion of them. 
come, which is just disturbing on so many levels. Okay. <laughs> I see. It's all the Protestants' fault. Oh. So the Catholics aren't much better. It's a lot of people's fault, and they're all fucking crazy. They've never been informed by science, and they've just gone off and just been... Well, that's what gets me. Um, just after the Dark Ages, there's this thing called the Renaissance. <laughs> um, right. And a lot of the advances in science were done by the Catholic Church, weirdly. God knows yes, what yeah. went wrong with religion after that, but yeah. <laughs> it was something. Da Vinci and Galileo. Well, Galileo had a few run-ins, but they were yeah. all... They all basically, at various times, got sponsorship from the Catholic Church. Science was being done by the Catholic Church. I mean... And all that stopped when they said, oh shit, <laughs> this is going to prove man's not the center of the universe, and, you know, what we think of as God is not what we should think of as God. Um, I don't know, and I guess to go off on a different tangent, um, if you want to talk religion... One of my favorite movies is Prometheus. <laughs> yeah. Sequel favorite, coming soon. Yeah. Yes. But one of the reasons that that is my favorite film is because, you know, yeah, it was the whole Eric Von Daniken Chariots of the Gods thing. Which, that's interesting reading. Um, <laughs> it's, it's interesting reading. But that was, that was basically what Prometheus was based on. I think yeah. a lot of people don't know that. Eric von um, Daniken, I have never laughed so much in my life as when I read his books. <laughs> well, I'm, I said it was interesting reading. But anyway, <laughs> I, I think what Prometheus does is it takes the premise of if God created you, no matter why he created you, you would be no more to him than an ant would be to a human being. Yeah. Something to be stepped on. Um, and I it's a very Debbie Downer approach to religion and God or whatever faith, but um, Alan Moore has covered it as well. Uh, I took a lot. Doctor Manhattan and yeah, the the Watchmen Watchmen. does that quote about um, you're no more to me than (laughs) yeah yeah exactly, and it's it would be the truth I think Um, ascribing human emotion to something that advanced is ridiculous it is and we are a product of whatever our brains the chemicals in our brains the oxytocin we're a chemical stew that makes us what we are and if something created us it would be a different chemical stew that made it what it is and to expect it to feel the same way we do is naive and extreme. And on that happy note, I think I'll talk about the Internet of Things and fucking crime wave. <laughs> ah, fridges and washing machines could be vital witnesses in murder plots. Now, you, you made a crack about that on Facebook. That was hilarious. Yeah. High tech wash. High-tech washing machines and fridges will soon be used by detectives gathering evidence from crime scenes, experts have forecast. The advent of the Internet of Things, in which more devices are connected together in a world of smart working, uh, in scare quotes, could in future provide important clues for the police. 
Detectives are currently being trained to look for gadgets and while and white goods, which could provide a digital footprint of victims or criminals. Mark Stokes, the head of the Digital Cyber and Communications Forensic Unit at the Metropolitan Police, told the Times, wireless cameras within a device such as a fridge may record the movement of owners and suspects, and don't forget that your fucking washing machine has a microphone in it. Just throwing that out there. Doorbells that connect directly to apps on a user's phone can show who has rung the doorbell, and the owner or others may be seen then remotely if they choose to give controlled access to the premises while away from the property. All these leave a log and a trace of activity. Crime scene of tomorrow is going to be the Internet of Things. Wow. If you end up with a crime scene like Boston Strangler stuff, you're really going to be fucking stumped. Um, if you're only relying on the IoT. The new Samsung family hub fridge has cameras that carry a live feed of its contents. A live feed. So, basically, you can go to your phone and look at your fridge. You can watch your, your lettuce drooping. You can, watch your, you can watch your lettuce go bad. It's old food doesn't die, it just goes bad. I'm just sorry. Um, uh, carry a live feed of its contents so shoppers can tell what they need when they are out of the shop. The dates and times that people log on to the fridge, <laughs> therefore, could provide alibis or prove that people are not what they said they were. Mr. Stokes said detectives of the future would carry a digital forensics toolkit, which would allow them to analyze microchips and download data at the scene rather than removing devices for testing. However, the police could come up against opposition from companies making gadgets who are concerned about the privacy of their customers. They can't be too fucking concerned. In the U.S., Amazon is currently fighting requests by the U.S. authorities to hand over recordings from one of its Echo Home Entertainment Systems, belonging to James Andrew Bates. Officers in Arkansas are investigating the murder of Victor Collins, who was found dead at Mr. Bates' hot tub in 2015. They've already taken evidence from an electric water meter, which appears to show a huge amount of water was used. Detectives say it could have been used to wash blood away from the patio. The Echo, <laughs> to jump from one thing to another, the Echo delivers weather forecasts, controls thermostats and light switches, and plays music. But it also has AI and improves over time based on the owner's voices, so it can provide insight into what happened on the night of Mr. Collins' death. The Internet of Things. It's wonderful, away. isn't it? Force that particular case, I think the vacuum cleaner did it. You know, it put, it put the hot, <laughs> it put the hot tub after it and gave hush money to the, the smart meter and the pressure washer. Uh, <laughs> it's it's ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Anything to get past the old hard detective work. I mean, how did we ever? Oh, I know how we catch criminals. We had alienists. You know, <laughs> that was the first. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know it's a word a lot of people don't use, but I knew you'd know that word. Um, without alienists, we didn't really have a behavioral sketch of a subject. And, yes. um, for, you know, for, yeah, other folks, early psychology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, very early psychology, but, you know, kind of the Holmes Watson thing, I guess. Yeah. More or less. Um, and without them, uh, if you had a serial killer or anything like that, you, you'd never catch these people. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've got to start worrying because tomorrow, yeah, I'm getting a action cam delivered and it's got a remote control. People, you can access it from your smartphone. It's, I'll probably start plotting my downfall as soon as it arrives. Yeah. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. I mean, we've got toys 
and I was reading about this in The Guardian, and I should probably go dig it out for people to see it. But we've got toys in this country that they're like talking Barbies and talking G.I. Joes, and they converse with the children, but they send all of your children's data to a defense contractor. Let me ask you something. The fuck does a defense contractor need to know what my kids are talking to their G.I. Joe or their Barbie about? They've, they've watched the film Toys and taken it too seriously. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. I mean, it was almost as whacked out as when I found out, was it, there was, there's a, what do they call it? The, um, there's an arm of the CIA that just manufactures products, right? Yeah. That's, that's how they make money. And they're manufacturing a skin cream. And that's supposed to be able to take samples of the epidermis for later testing. Yeah. I mean, to me, that just seems crazy. I, I can see where it would have uses, but it could also be used to violate people's Fourth Amendment rights or their, you know, Fifth Amendment rights now to incriminate them. Um, it, it really is getting to be this kind of digital panopticon and not just digital. It's becoming a panopticon everywhere. You don't need to put people in prison. You create the prison around the people. Um, and I'm not in love with that. And I think, honestly, people will get fed up with it and they will get dumb TVs. They will get dumb refrigerators, dumb washers, dumb dryers, dumb stoves. Um, you know, I know that I personally have, you know, I, I got a semi-smart phone, but it's not really smart like anybody else's phone I've ever seen. Um, I feel sorry for some of the smartphones. Why? Because they're definitely smarter than the people using them. Pretty true. <laughs> That's actually really true. And it's kind of scary. So, I don't know. I just think the interconnectedness is too much and it wasn't well thought out. And I think people get sick of it and go, this is too expensive, it breaks too easy, it can get hacked. We saw where a Samsung television got, what, um, what's that called? Uh, ransomware on it. Yeah. Over Christmas. You know, and the owner couldn't do anything with it and had to beg for instructions on how you reset it. Yes. It's crazy. Crazy, crazy shit. There's probably like three engineers in Japan on holiday who have the answers on how to fix it. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, South Korea, not Japan, in Samsung's yeah. case. So, literally, it'll be the, the only guys who'll know about the the full hard reset will be, you know, some of the original designers who designed yeah. the firmware. Which is, and how sad is that? And I think that's kind of the direction we're headed in. Um, we've taken this jump very far forward in in everything and people are going to go whoa Nelly slow it down back it off a little bit now I, I don't want a fridge that shows me you know what my lettuce is doing today and I don't want you know a smart toaster or whatever it's not necessary I think people are going to back off from that stuff and go with more classic stuff that can be easily repaired I know I can get a completely refurbished stove that works perfectly right now for $50 if my stove were done. I have a pretty nice stove. And I'm telling you, because of the repairability factor and the 
interconnectedness factor, I would go with the used, easily fixable stove right now. Yeah, one of my sisters still is still using a microwave that my father bought in 1978. Okay. <laughs> if it works and it's not leaking radiation, why It has it? broken down once. Wow. An internal fuse blew. I put a new fuse huh. in it. Cool. <laughs> well, like it's I been said, going it's stronger. Not... That was about 15 years ago. Um, yeah. But, I mean, honestly, I think... There's something to be said for maybe not the frugality, but I think the frugality has something to do with it. But there's something to be said for something you can fix yourself that doesn't need a reset, that doesn't need an engineer to fix. Uh, there really is something to be said for that, uh, don't you think? Isn't that yeah. more appealing? Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, lots of people look at, oh, look, it's got upgradable firmware. The, the back of my head, uh, the little voice goes, that means they haven't finished writing the software. <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, yeah exactly. um, in the past, things were released as finished products and operating system controls were in read-only memory. There's no way to upgrade them. But they just worked until they broke down. Now, now everything uh, turns up and it's all firmware updatable and goes wrong all the time. Exactly. Because <laughs> they haven't fully tested everything and finalized the, yeah, I mean, the operating system. You know, not only have they not fully tested everything, it's like they haven't thought this stuff out, that there's going to be problems. You know? I mean, um, I do, I do like upgradable things, but it should be uh -huh. genuine upgrades, not just. Well, we found this other problem, so this new firmware fixes it. Uh -huh. It's like, shouldn't you have found that before you started selling it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. But none of this stuff is well thought out before stuff comes to market. It's, no. it's always the rush to be new and better, and, and new and better is not always going to be great. I never, I never I ever it. buy something as soon as it's released. There have been and two exceptions in my life. Yeah. The first was Nintendo GameCube. I got that on the day of release. But right. Nintendo don't tend to put things out that don't work. Um, mm -hmm. And the other is Arriving Tomorrow. And that's just yeah. by accident, because I wanted an action cam. It was at a good price, but literally it had only been listed on Amazon mm -hmm. yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and the price went up £5 just after I bought it, which is always good. It's like, hey, I got a good deal. That's good. But, you know, yeah. and, and that's the stuff that you care about and the stuff that you want to have that's smart and good and worth the money is something you should definitely pay for. But I got to tell you, I think buying used, refurbished, or easily repairable classic stuff is, is going to be the wave of the future. And I, there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's a good thing. I think it's a positive step forward. Yeah. I don't think 
that people are going to like that, though, because we've seen uh, they've made it so you can't repair your own tractor if you have a newer model John Deere, yeah. you know, because it has software on it, and they consider the software their their proprietary thing. So I say my, my uncle, the mechanic, does not own a motor vehicle that needs to have a computer plugged into it. <laughs> All his most of the stuff he owns is pre-computer chips arriving. But that makes sense. <laughs> Why wouldn't he do that? Well, it's because it means he can fix it all himself rather than exactly. having to get specialist yeah. equipment. Um, exactly, and that's the way to do it. I mean, that it is better for your privacy. It's better for your wallet. It's better for your pocketbook. And I, I think, as a human being, it's got to be better for your self-esteem when you can fix your own stuff. You don't have to take it to the NASA guy up the road. <laughs> you know, there's no need of that. It's not Nearest eleven-year-old old child usually uh, is the well, answer people give. This isn't working. Find an eleven-year-old. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes that'll work. You yeah. know, But when it's really busted, beyond broken. Well, yeah, I spend not a huge deal of my time, but. People come to me with things or ask me questions about things that are not working. Mm -hmm. And my, my, I am basically a triage service. I will tell people, <laughs> yeah, no point in getting that fixed. Or, yep. yes, that's worth saving. Yeah, you know. Because I pay attention to, when I buy stuff, other than this cheap action cam that's coming tomorrow, I right. I tend to l carefully look at the technology involved. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I bought a solid-state drive for my computer. Mm -hmm. sure. I just didn't just go and buy a solid-state drive. No, no, no. Mm -hmm. Two months of reading before I bought a solid-state drive, one of which was looking at product failure rates. Well, so it's like, I want the one that doesn't break <laughs> well, I mean, they all break, but I want the one that's got the lowest failure rate. <laughs> I want the one that breaks least. Yes. <laughs> and who can blame you for that? And and that, if you're going to spend your hard-earned money, isn't that the way to do it? Wish governments certainly would, but they definitely don't. Well, they have low concern for cost and low concern for quality, because fuck it, it's not their money, it's just yeah. your money. Um, and that's, that's kind of well, since I'm on disability benefits, you see, I, I'm providing a service, obviously. I only buy tried and tested products for the most part. So in that. the long run, I am saving the government money. Sort <laughs> of, kind of. Although well, I did you know, pay taxes for 20 years, 20, uh, nearly 30 years. So yeah, it's <laughs> kind of my money still at the minute. Well, I mean, here's the thing too. If you're that good at that, that's a service you should offer to the government. I can do this for you. <laughs> I don't think Just they'd take pay. me up on it for some reason. Well, it's a shame. It's a shame because the government needs more fiscal watchdogs in charge of a lot of their programs. People who would actually do the research and find them as bargain for their money. Well, I mean, people find, people find me insane when they see me doing it. When I'm thinking about buying something and I'm online for hours... Just reading reviews, reading journals, etc. What are you doing? I'm thinking of getting an LED light bulb. <laughs> What's all that about then? 
So I'm seeing which one's best. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the way to do it. Um, you know, and a lot of people base their purchasing um, on reviews. If you look at, like... You could do a whole show on Amazon reviews, I'm telling you. They're hilarious. I know, I could. I know. I, I never dug into that, but that would be fun. I actually thought about doing that, or... You know what? I, I'm kind of surprised, like... I'm kind of surprised Jeannie hasn't done, like, a whole prepping show. Like, I, I think that's something she could do every week with, like, no thought on her part at <laughs> all. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I think that would be a great podcast for her, actually, if she ever decided she wanted to do something that wasn't, you know, strictly vaping related. And I, you know, I just keep thinking about that because those shows are, are really interesting stuff. Uh, I listen to a lot of them. Um, one of one of the more interesting ones is there's a lady, her name's Kat, and uh, she does like a lot of herbal medicine. She yeah. has like a show called Cat the Herbal Prepper, and she talks about you know different herbs that you take and how you prepare them, and you know she does do video casts and stuff too. But you know she she just does really interesting stuff, and. Most of this stuff is lost art that we don't see so much anymore or hear about or get advice about. You have to pay for that. But it's stuff that people's grandparents knew how to do. And there's a resurgence, a big resurgence, and a, and a big interest in that stuff now because, A, people can't... A lot of people are, I don't want to say barely making it, but their their paychecks are not covering much after everything is said and done you buy food you pay your bills and then you've got a little bit of extra income well the guys i find intriguing are the archaeological engineers and you know craftsmen mm -hmm. and they try to figure out how our ancestors did specific things because yeah. yeah some of it's quite interesting Mm -hmm. you know little things like you know the archimedes screw wasn't actually invented by archimedes <laughs> if you're listening, go look that up. It's really interesting. Yeah. It involves the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, that one. Yeah, I've I've seen some of the shows where they show, like, the Emperor's party boats and, and the, the way they were built and how they worked and people still trying to figure them out to this day. Yeah. That's just interesting stuff. It, well, I mean, it, it was only just it's all last year. They f was it last year they figured out how exactly they built the damn pyramids? Yeah, it's taken them this long <laughs> to go. Yeah, How the hell did they do that? Exactly. Yeah, the internal exactly. ramp mechanism. Mm -hmm. Really, you know, it's crazy. it's crazy, crazy stuff, and it's stuff that if you didn't have conquering bands of people, there would still be either oral or written history of, of how to do this stuff or how to make this stuff work. And, no, and some stuff just up. ends up getting lost. But weirdly. not everything, not everything does. So I don't know. There's well, something... I mean, the art of cobbling um, your own shoes. was in is in decline because everything's done by machines now. So yeah, well, the they... industrial revolution killed off yeah. loads of it because people just they weren't doing it anymore, so it stops being an active skill, so they forget it. 
so you know. Well, I mean, well, if I want to have a nice pair of shoes made, I'll just go see Daniel there. Yeah. Luckily, Here. yeah, since rich people like <laughs> custom-made <laughs> shoes, that one's not going to stop happening. But him. Well, but what I'm, what I'm saying is, it, it can still. It's but but every every town used stuff, to have a cobbler. You know. They don't. I remember we had a shoe shop in town when I was a kid and having really good shoes and having new soles put on them. In, you know what I mean? New complete internals put on my shoes. Complete mm. new bottoms and, and everything because the shoes were great, you know, and they lasted me years. And every few years you'd have to spend a little bit of money, but if they were good shoes, they were worth doing that way. Well, I mean, I had a set of walking boots, and they lasted me for nearly 20 years. Uh, but I eventually had to throw them away, because there was only one place in the world that could resole them. And at the time, I was unemployed and couldn't afford to send them to Sweden to get resold. <laughs> That's sad. Yeah. But you got a good long time out of them. Yeah. You know, there's some there's something to be said for that. Um and you know, everybody talks about being responsible for the planet and recycling. People who had handmade stuff were really involved in that. You know what I mean? Not only did they grow their own food and, and make their own clothes, um you you had to to grab a very communist quote, you seized the means of production. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and once you had that, there was nothing that could stop you, basically. And of course, you were really only responsible for you. They changed somewhat. But um, that's still a valuable, valuable skill set. And there's so much of that that's lost today. And it, it shouldn't be that way. It shouldn't be that. That knowledge should still be that sort of thing you can get from your grandparents. But uh, it's not... So, I guess in summary, <laughs> I've decided what Jeannie's post vape show career is going to be. <laughs> I hope she liked that decision. Um, I, I'm back. I'm back on Fridays. And um, this was honestly, this was more a dry run than anything to see if everything still worked. If I could do it. Um, and hopefully, everybody liked it. And I guess Muppets and Andrew. Muppets and Antwerp. Why do we always come here? I guess we'll never know. It's like a kind of torture to have to watch the show. Why spend hours searching for in-stock ammunition when you can use AmmoSeek.com? AmmoSeek.com is a search engine for finding ammunition, reloading components, magazines, and guns for more than 300 calibers at more than 60 online retailers. AmmoSeek.com only shows items that are in stock and readily available for shipping. You can search by caliber, grains, manufacturer, and more. The results are displayed by cost per round, so you are able to get the very best pricing on your ammunition of choice. Find ammunition at the best prices, fast. Um, yes, Auntie Nanny will be on Fridays from now on. So Fridays at 6 o'clock right here. And I should probably have the replay up by sometime Saturday on my site. And then it should go up shortly after Kevin's replay goes up with the VP Live stuff. Um, 
thanks for listening guys see you next week